Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Justin Sledge about ancient Jewish views on astrology. Uh, so, hey, Justin, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate it. So, you are the host of the Esoterica YouTube channel, uh, which is available at youtube.com/slash Esoterica channel. And you have sort of an academic background where you specialize in the study of uh, Western esotericism, right? That's right. Yeah, I studied. Uh, I have a PhD in philosophy, and I also studied in the University of Amsterdam, which is one of the few places in the world, basically, that offers an advanced academic degree in the study of uh, Western esotericism and Hermetic philosophy. So I focused uh, a good bit of my time there, and uh, yeah, produce content that takes a look at topics in the occult, magic, alchemy, Kabbalah, from a academic perspective. But I hope the channel is both useful from anyone from a complete skeptic, uh, but also for practicing occultists and esotericists. So it's a really interesting kind of project, at least I think it is. So uh, yeah, I hope folks will check the channel out and maybe they find some interesting things there. Yeah, I've really been enjoying the channel. It has a lot of really amazing stuff on it. And um, I'm really looking forward to getting into this topic with you because I've been wanting to do an episode on um, Jewish views on astrology in ancient times uh, for a while now, but I haven't found anybody to do it with until uh, we crossed paths earlier this year. And we've been talking about doing this episode for, I think, a few months now. Uh, so mm -hmm. let, why don't we go ahead and get get right into it? Um, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. All right. So um, the starting point and the most interesting point about this for me, or the most you know obvious immediate starting point, is just. The location of, um, like, the, sort of the origins of the Jewish people uh, in the Mediterranean region, in that little region that's right between the sort of origin point of the two main cultures that fed into and sort of created Western astrology, which is the Mesopotamia Mesopotamians or the Babylonians um, over in what is modern day Iraq on the one hand. Who were developing a tradition of astrology since at least about 2000 BCE, and then you have the Egyptians um, over in Egypt also developing a tradition of astrology since about 2000 BCE, and right in between there you have um, you know this other land that's kind of caught in between and had very interesting interactions with both of those cultures. Um, so that's sort of the starting point in terms of then. You know what was the relationship between the Jewish people and astrology, and was it always favorable, or was it always unfavorable, or what was the deal? So that, that's sort of my starting point. Where should we start in terms of the history, though, or where does the the timeline of Jewish his, history start? Well, the the Israelite people uh, enter into history sometime about the 13th century BCE. Really, um, we have the first mention of Israel and the Merneptah Steli at about 1204, 1206, where the son of Ramses the Great basically claims to have destroyed them. Um, and we have them being mentioned along several other peoples that have been destroyed. And so that's kind of where the ancient Israelites enter into history is that Steli. Um, Although the, the the kingdom of ancient Israel probably enters into history sometime around 1000 BCE with uh, King David, although there's some debate about this, uh, there's a two there's two competing chronologies at this point, but the typical chronology is about 1000 BCE. Although the the texts that we have of the Hebrew Bible date from a, a much later period, and so if we're going to look 
to try to get a grasp on how the ancient Israelites thought about the heavens and the influence of the heavens on their lives or on the world, it's really going to be primarily in the Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament, that we're going to see sort of the landscape of, um, of, of what we might call astrological or astral views. And of course, uh, these writers aren't writing specifically about astrology, and so many of the references that we get are very oblique, and we can maybe get into some of those references and some of the astral bodies and how they relate to the world. But the references are often oblique, and they're often hostile. As you might imagine, the Israelites were a, a tiny little kingdom. Uh, Jerusalem was a tiny little city there compared to Babylon or, or uh, Luxor or Thebes. And so the, the cultural practices of their neighbors are going to be sort of a weird object for the ancient Israelites. On the one hand, they're going to be heavily influenced by them, and that's evident in all the archaeology we see. But on the other hand, they're going to be very interested, the Israelites are going to be very interested in distinguishing themselves as different. And part of how they're going to distinguish themselves as different is going to be in their religious practices, specifically in what they don't do. And one of the things that uh, it seems like they distanced themselves from was the practices of uh, both worshiping objects that were in the sky, but specifically also trying to um, divine meaning uh, from those objects in the sky. So we have a kind of complex relationship, a very complex relationship. And I think as we'll, we'll go through history, that relationship to astrology and Judaism is going to remain very tense. It's going to be always... Some folks are very pro, some folks are very against, and Judaism just sort of grapples with this problem. And even with modern legal codes, has never really completely um, definitively said one way or the other. Mm. And, and one even more prominently or importantly, uh, one of the differentiations from its neighbors as well was in developing uh, monotheism and, and developing a religious focus on monotheism. When does that come into play, or or when does that become uh, like a central theological focus? Yeah, obviously a very controversial question. Um, there's a lot of answers to that question. Um, the traditional answer is since Moses. I, I, I'm not sure historically we can quite stand by that, or since Abraham, I don't know we can stand by that either, at least from a historical point of view. Uh, we see a slow development. It's very clear that uh, the ancient Israelites were uh, what we call henotheists, that is to say, they worship specifically their god, their their uh, national god, but they acknowledge the existence of other gods. And eventually that does transform into a strict monotheism where there's only one god. The, the first really clear place we see a very, very strict kind of monism, uh, monotheism is going to be in what is sometimes called Third Isaiah, which are the last sections of the prophet Isaiah. And there it's very clear that the god talking is fairly clearly just one god, all the other gods are not really real, and both good and evil moral qualities uh, come from that god. So there's not even a kind of devil figure either. It's just God, and God's responsible for uh, the, the being there. It says, Ani or v'choshech, I am the light and the dark. Ani tov v'ra, I am the good and the evil. And that's a radical kind of monotheism. I think a radical kind of monotheism that most people aren't willing to accept even now. And and this is important in the context of those other cultures that it's situated in between in the ancient world, like Mesopotamia or Egypt, where uh, polytheism was kind of the main thing for like thousands of years, right? For sure, for sure. And with the exception of a sort of strange blip in Egypt there with Akhenaten, um, um, quite some time before, 
But yeah, typically monotheism was a very unusual idea, and the Romans thought it was a very unusual idea even much later. It's it's always struck people as a it's odd that it's so normative now compared to the thousands of years of ancient history where monotheism was thought to be completely aberrant and weird. Um, and again, part of what's going on there is that these other cultures, their deities live in the sky and are identified with stars and with the wandering stars, the planets, and they were the object of they were the object of worship. They were also the object of worship for many Israelites, much to the chagrin of the prophets. And it, part of what's going to go on in the Israelite mentality is saying, no, the, the, you cannot worship these beings. Uh, in fact, you may not even uh, want to study what they do, how they move, because that might be tantamount to uh, a kind of uh, astral worship. So it, it's this is where things get really ambiguous, where early on, are we dealing with a worry around worshiping the stars? And in fact, even the modern uh, Hebrew legal term for uh, paganism, I guess, is uh, avodah hochavim. Is uh, avodah hochavim v'mazalot? It's the worship of the stars and the mazalot, the constellations. Even though I don't know that many people do that anymore, that's still the the the, the term in Hebrew for uh, paganism or aberrant Jewish practice at some level. One of the terms, or is simply reading the stars to understand how they move and uh, what they. Uh, what they're signs of is that also tantamount to worshiping them. And this is a, the, the Hebrew Bible seems to deeply can conflate those at some level often. Yeah. And I think this is going to be one of our central discussion points and, and questions that maybe we'll come back to. And it's interesting seeing how at different points in history, different Jewish authors um, wrangled with this question and how it had important implications for astrology. But Maybe in the in the earliest parts, just understanding, especially at the oldest portions of uh, maybe Hebrew literature, that to the extent that it's growing up in this context of um, you have like the Mesopotamians over here who are polytheistic and and worship gods in many different forms and in, in nature and attribute divine things to nature in general, including to planets and stars and things like that. And to that extent, the planets and stars were seen as like divine, sentient beings that you could do propitiation rituals to, or you could do other things like that. Um, and then in Egypt, we have that even more so, with the exception of that really brief reign of that one um, pharaoh who was so controversial that I think after he died, they tried to like erase him from the history books. Uh, no, that's right. More or less successfully. Did you do a video on him? I've not done one on him, and he has this famous hymn to the Aten, and uh, you know Tutankhamun was his son. Of course, Tutankhamun wasn't born Tutankhamun; he was born Tutankhaten, and had to change his name after his father after his father died because of this Armarna heresy. So, um, but yeah, and there's a lot of questions about to what degree does the Akhenaten episode relate to the development of monotheism in ancient Israel? I don't think there's much of a connection, but some people have argued there is. Right, and that one was specifically he tried to change. The polytheism of Egypt to be primarily just worshiping the sun, and that was his weird, uh, or at least unique sort of idea at the time that then became controversial in Egyptian society. Absolutely, and also controversial to a giant bureaucratic layer of priests who, you know, their job security was threatened by, you know, right? Yeah. yeah. So it, there's lots of reasons why it was unpopular. Uh, I think another reason why it was unpopular it was really unfun to go to the temples because the the rest of the ancient Egyptian temples, like many temples, are enclosed buildings, and 
that's not the tra- the case for the the Aten. You stood in the sun and worshipped this being, and mm. many of the people who came as emissaries to uh, Egypt to 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 do homage to the Aten were standing in the baking sun of Egypt, and uh, they were like, "This is just practically not a great. This is not fun." Uh, yeah, I get so, I get sunburns really easily, so that would not have worked <laughs> out for me. Yeah, sun worship can be. Yeah, I think you yeah, you got to have some really good sunscreen to do sun worship, and I'm not sure it existed so much and. Uh, and uh and whatever then in ancient egypt but yeah the whatever the egyptian version of like spf 100 is um so at least, <laughs> at least. so the egyptians they had um also the decans they as- developed the astrology mm-hmm. of the 36 decans which became like these 36 fixed stars or asterisms that were used in order to time different religious rituals when certain Fixed stars were rising over the eastern horizon or culminating overhead, right. and that became like the um, precursor for um, the later concept of the twelve houses in Western astrology. Whereas over in Mesopotamia, we have the zodiac developing, and they developed the twelve sign zodiac, and also the study of a complex mathematical astronomy in order to track the positions of the planets far right. into the future and the past. And this eventually coincided with the development of natal astrology and birth charts in like the fifth century BCE. So, what's the time period for, like the you know Christians will call it like the Old Testament? Um, what is the time period for the composition of that? So we have a range of texts. Some of them probably date back quite old. We think maybe some of them even predate the uh, the period of the Davidic monarchy. So maybe pre one thousand BCE. There's some reason to believe the Song of the Sea is rather archaic and maybe some hymns of Devorah. So let's say circa 1200 BCE, that's really contested. And then uh, the Hebrew Bible as we know it is basically edited together as a document that we might recognize sometime after the Babylonian exile. So beginning in the Persian period, so the 586 BCE is when the exile occurs. And then through the 5th and 4th centuries, the Hebrew Bible as we know it probably began to take shape. Really quickly, um, so, what's the exile? Could you explain the exile really quickly for those not familiar with it? Sure. So um, the uh, the the what ends up happening is that there are two instances in which the kingdom of Israel, uh, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, we think split at one point. The northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BCE. Um, most of those folks were scattered throughout the world. We don't really know what happened to many of those people. 722, then, 722 BCE. 722 BCE, that's when the okay. Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, which was probably the more prosperous kingdom. That's and then really eventually interesting time frame in the history of astrology, because that's roughly like eighth, seventh and eighth century BCE is roughly the high point of state state supported astrology in Mesopotamia under the Assyrians, where um, they had at least like ten different colleges of astrologers that were set up around Mesopotamia that all sent reports into the king directly and astrology was very much a government affair in many ways so yeah. just to locate things in terms of the history of astrology that's yeah that's fascinating yeah 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 the assyrians were not just in, in terms of astrology but also uh prophecy uh, they're one of the only other cultures that we have prophetic documents in which they had uh, much like you described in terms of astrological literature prophetic literature in which prophets would give prophecies and those prophecies would be written down and then sent to the king in order to decide what to do. We see something very similar actually happening in ancient Israel where uh, the prophets become one of the mechanisms by which political decisions get made. And one could assume that um, similar kinds of things might be going on also in Israel. 
the Babylonian Empire eventually conquers the Assyrian Empire, and uh, Judah, this the country, the the couple of little um, the little kingdom beneath Israel becomes its own becomes semi independent, then becomes a fief, basically a Babylon. It rebels, and the Babylonians ultimately destroy it in 586, and the 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 Judahites, uh, what are some of the few remaining people, along with Simeon and Benjamin, those folks are then carted over to the Babylonian, the, the at least the aristocrats are carted over, and that becomes what we know as the Babylonian exile, where those uh, aristocrats largely are taken over to Babylon, and they're held there for a couple of generations until they're allowed to return when the Persian Empire conquers the Babylonians, and that the Persians are much more lenient, um, and they allow the Judahites to return to their homeland and rebuild their temple and things like that. So, the, so that's happening in the Persian period. So there's like an entire society or level of society that is like transported from that area over to Mesopotamia. That's right, and and it's in that context where they become probably beginning to really come in contact with Babylonian culture and also Persian culture, and it's very likely in that context that they're going to pick up a lot of the. Uh, both positively and negatively, they're going to pick up a lot of these sort of astrological ideas that are going on and current there, and bring those back. Um, yeah, that's. But so we also super, know that that's super crucial. So this is in a period before the invention of natal astrology, but when mundane astrology in Mesopotamian Babylon was was sort of at its peak, and they were paying attention to the movements of the planets and stars as one of the many forms of divination that could. Send signs from the gods to humankind, and which um, the state especially would use as one of its sort of form intelligence forms or intelligence apparatus to make decisions about um, political moves and what to do in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they're going to bring. I think we they're going to bring some of that stuff back, and of course, not long after that, they're going to come into direct contact with Hellenism, and of course, the between the again stuck between several different peoples, we're going to see. Some people drift into Hellenism, some people drift into the Babylonian context. Of course, Jews were also returned to Babylon during the Talmudic period, which we'll get into later. And what's happening is that Judaism is always it's always in sort of a weird thing. It's always an inside-out culture in that it's always looking to the outside to some degree, but it's always struggling to maintain its own identity. And so there's always a negotiation about what you bring in and what you keep out. And you see this negotiation happen in the Hebrew Bible. You see it happen in Jewish literature and in Jewish communities all to this day. And uh, astrology is going to be one of the big things where, on the one hand, very few people are going to deny that it's real, that it, that it accurately describes and can do what it says it does. The question is, do we let it in? And that's really going to be a big driving question that's going to be, you can see it all the way back in the Hebrew Bible where the prophet Jeremiah says, Look, don't look to the uh, otot shemaim, the otot shemaim, the signs of the heaven. Don't be afraid of those. Well, the fact that he calls them otot shemaim means that they are signs. That he has to kind of admit that there, and there, there, there's something going on up there. But God is in control. We shouldn't be worried about this. And so that's always the question: is right? Is is are these heavenly bodies uh, causing things, communicating things? Are they determining things? Do they express the will of God? And the the Israelite population, the Jewish population, can never quite make up its mind about what it wants to what to do with that. So, uh, and then we can maybe talk more about sort of what we see in the Hebrew Bible. But there's this also this general anxiety around divination, and the Hebrew Bible is very, again, very mixed about divination. There are illicit and illicit forms of divination 
Although what's interesting is that astrology is, there's no word for astrology in, in ancient Hebrew at this level. And so luckily for later astrologers, because there's no word for it in classical biblical Hebrew, they don't say you can't do it. And because it's not explicitly outlawed, it can kind of get smuggled back in. The closest thing is something like meonin, uh, which comes from the Hebrew word probably anan, which means cloud. But again, and even the phrase otot shemaim, uh, the signs of the heaven that Jeremiah says not to uh, pay attention to, the word ot is a weird word because it can mean sign, it can mean miracle, it can mean prodigy. Uh, the keshet, the rainbow that was uh, that God revealed after the Noah's Ark business, uh, that's also called an ot. So are you know rainbows, comets, what are these things? So um, there's a lot of ambiguity, and ambiguity is great for people who want to to do things that maybe other people don't want them to do. And the same is going to be true for Jewish magic. Um, Jewish magic will be practiced for centuries, and anytime it says, "Hey, you can't do that," you're like, "Well, I'm not doing what the Bible says not to do," because we don't know what those words mean. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the things I learned from one of my teachers, Nick Campion, was he always pointed out that whenever you see something. Um, in a historical text that is like a law forbidding something, our, our initial impulse is to think, well, oh, that means that wasn't happening or wasn't practiced during that that time period because it was being suppressed. But it's actually quite the opposite. Whenever you no, see something right. that is a uh, like a prescription against something or 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 a statement saying you shouldn't do this, the only reason that's there is because somebody's trying to do it and and it's right. they're attempting to suppress something that is actually an issue that they want to counteract somehow. That's right. I mean, we say the same thing, prohibitions are evidence of practice. Right. So it's a yeah. shorter version of the same thing. So yeah, when the Bible goes through and says, don't do X and don't do Y and don't do this, they're not worried about non-Israelites doing it. That's evidence that Israelites are doing it because they don't care about what Egyptians do. They care about what Israelites do. And it's clear that when you see these long lists of methods of divination or these long lists of various forms of uh, magic, it's pretty clear that they're they're practicing them. Um so yeah, the same with uh, the same with divination by the stars. It's just something that that is the object of anxiety for some of the writers of the Hebrew Bible. So one of the points about that then, and one of the things I was surprised as I was preparing for this episode, there was an interesting realization was that um, especially in earlier periods, um, Judaism and, and Jewish society is not. Um, monolithic, but there's many different groups of people doing different things. And it seemed like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like that's something to be uh, aware of in the early periods as well, that there may have been a more diversity of practice and views than we might get the sense of in retrospect once the textual tradition had been like um, standardized a little bit more. Well, that's true. Yeah. And also the the textual tradition reflects often the writers in the priestly class of folks, the elite class of folks in Jerusalem, uh, who really want to centralize political and religious power in that one city. And there certainly was people out there worshiping lots of different gods. They would worship the Israelite God, but they also worship the Israelite God and his wife, which we know from inscriptions, the Israelite God had a wife. Um, and they worshiped both of them happily. And it wasn't until the reign of people like Hezekiah and Josiah, these kings that uh, led reforms is how it gets said, but I think it's better to translate them as inquisitions, and we actually see evidence uh, where non-Jerusalemite shrines, like the one at Tel Arad, are just basically torn down. And um, so, yeah, the, the the vision we get is a very specific, very um, 
it's a very it's a it's a very narrow vision. And if we look at the archaeological evidence, we see tons of little so you know, idols, I guess you could call them. So it's very clear that people on the street are doing something very different than the Jerusalem priesthood. And the people writing these prohibitions represent one percent of the population, perhaps. And so we shouldn't extrapolate that we we should probably conclude that when they say don't do something, that's what the vast majority of people are in fact doing. Uh, I think what may be the more likely thing to believe. Um, so yeah, and I think when you look at the again, when you tell people don't worry about the signs in the heavens, well, that's because people are pretty worried about the signs in the heavens, and they can probably read them at some level or a claim they can. And so the prophet Jeremiah having to tell them don't do it probably means that they can and do. Mm. Okay, and and in terms of the move towards monotheism. Um, there was like one when you have like a polytheistic society or uh, different Mediterranean cultures that have polytheism. Um, at some point, there was an identification of one God who was like the main God, who was was Yahweh, right? And um, at that point, that's the sort of move towards more of a focus on monotheism rather than polytheism. That's right. Yeah, this this central God, uh, uh, this God Yahweh whose origins are frankly very mysterious. We don't really know where this god came from. This god was not indigenously a Canaanite god. It seems like they were imported perhaps from the Sinai, I think the Sinai, maybe northern Arabia. And this god was imported in and ultimately gets conflated with the more uh, local god El, and then El and Yahweh become fused into one god. And over the long course of things, um, these various other deities either get uh, demonized, they become false gods or bad gods. You can think of a god like Baal, uh, storm god, very popular god, in fact, in the ancient Mes- in the ancient uh, in the ancient Levant, Baal was probably the most popular. And what ends up happening is that as the Israelites grow, they basically subsume a lot of the functions that Baal did into Yahweh. In fact, we have a couple of psalms in the Bible that were probably originally to Baal, and the Israelite writer just kind of uh, control F and just subtracted out the names. Because they don't seem to be taking place in Israel, they seem to be taking place in Lebanon, and it's clearly a storm god. It's like, this is not Yahweh, but the name Yahweh is in there over and over again. And we think originally this was a Baal hymn that kind of got switched over. And ditto with the stars, right? What ends up happening with the stars and the heavenly bodies is that they become subservient to to this god. And um, the the various uh, stars, and we have some curious entities, and, and what ends up happening is that the stars become from what we can tell, kind of heavenly soldiers. They become the uh, tzevaot, right? We have this term, Yahweh tzevaot, or Adonai tzevaot, the the god of the hosts. And what we mean by hosts there are legions of armies, like an angelic army. And those are almost certainly uh, stars that were converted into kind of an angelic army. We even meet the leader of this army, the Sar Tzeva Adonai, the, the prince of the tzevaot, and this entity helps Joshua in a battle against uh, the city of Jericho. And so the stars get converted into a kind of angelic army. And there are a couple of really famous stars that we have mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Mazarot, which will become important in later Jewish astrology. This becomes the word for constellation. Um, perhaps the most famous star, which is probably not a star, is the uh, star of the Halel ben Shachar. Uh, this is, means something like uh, the shining one, son of the dawn. And that uh, that star is uh, is cast down. It's actually thrown into the uh, Israelite underworld, 
And later Christians will take that verse from Isaiah and then make it not about Nebuchadnezzar II, which it was about a Babylonian king, and they're going to convert that prophecy against Nebuchadnezzar into a allegory about, well, the devil. And this star becomes Lucifer, the light bearer. Uh, it was probably originally Venus. It's probably originally Venus, the morning star. So this uh, Venus goes from being a, a goddess, uh, Asherah, to being Halab and Shahar, and then eventually gets converted all the way into um, Lucifer, the light bearer, and eventually the devil. So the process of the demonization of, of uh, stars and what's going on up there is part of how this goes down in, um, in Israelite mythology. Yeah, th that's one of the most interesting things to me is the way in which the earlier um, polytheistic Mediterranean culture where there's many gods gets um, adapted to the monotheism of Judaism by making um, the other gods and things basically like lesser spirits or turning them into angels. So some of those things get passed on and, and continued as part of a tradition, but they become angels, like good angels or bad angels that are in a subservient role under the primary creator god. Yeah, you have a kind of um, promotion or demotion, depending on how you want to look at it. And you can see that really clearly happening by the time we get to the apocalyptic literature, it's things like the Book of Enoch, which show clear evidence where um, Hellenistic and also Mesopotamian astronomical slash astrological theories are penetrating into Israelite, the Israelite worldview. Uh, as you probably know, the Israelite worldview basically is imagines a flat earth, like a disc supported by pillars, and above it is a dome, right? And that's a flat dome, and then God is above that dome, and then the stars are sort of stuck into that that dome. That's the classic, and then there's the underworld beneath that. That's the classic Israelite worldview. What ends up happening is as the apocalyptic uh, as the apocalyptic mode of Judaism rises, there's an importation of Hellenistic, early Hellenistic and Mesopotamian ideas. And what ends up happening is the sky gets a lot thicker. The sky expands. And as the sky expands, you get more and more and more heavens. And part of the reason why you need these more and more heavens is because you, you need to begin to do the hard work of figuring out why are these things moving and what are they moving in? And so you just you have a, a basic physics problem, I suppose. And so the heavens get a lot thicker. Now, that doesn't mean that the mechanisms become uh, worthwhile of study. In fact, in the book of Enoch, what ends up happening is that these angels uh, fall from heaven and begin to mate with human women. And one of the things that they do is teach human beings all kinds of bad stuff like war and cosmetics. And one of the things they teach them is astrology, right? It's, it's, um, and so this, uh, also herbalism for some reason, um, I think this probably tracks at some level to also there's some misogyny operating here as well. Yeah, um, cosmetic, cosmetics and herbalism as the bane of society is one of those ongoing. We're still struggling with that one. Yeah, it's it's. I think there's some. Yeah, again, the, these it's it's a boys' club, and it's not surprising. There's a good bit of operative misogyny here, um, and there's a long list of the what the other things the angels and each angel each one each one of these nephilim the fallen ones teach uh, one of these uh, domains, and astrology becomes one of these domains. Which again, there's something ironic about that because this is also at the same time where uh, the really complex debates around the Jewish calendar began to emerge. And the only way to really answer those really complex debates around the Jewish calendar, uh, because as I'm, as I'm sure you know, and many folks in your audience may know that part of what's really important about Judaism is that 
it has a very strict calendar, and that calendar is connected to astral reading astral bodies. You have to know when the sun's coming up. You have to know when the sun's going down, when the moon is going to be new. You have to know exactly what's going on in specific months of the year, and these these holidays are tied two times of the year. And so a strict lunar calendar won't do, because if you just observe a strict lunar calendar and you observe a holiday in a specific month, what will end up happening is that holiday will drift through the seasons. And you can't very well have a harvest festival in the middle of February. And so, or what would have, you know, for us be February. Let's actually and so they expand, had to correct. Let's expand on that point. And yeah. for those that don't know, or, or let's not take it for granted. So the Jewish calendar and some of the most important dates on it are explicitly based on astronomical alignments based on a solar lunar calendar. So for example, and correct me if I'm wrong, Passover occurs on the first full moon on the 14th day of the first month, right? Right. Or, or it's so it's the f- it's the first month for that counting. In fact, there are four different New Years, which makes it even more complicated. There are four different calendrical systems operating in the Jewish calendar. But yeah, it has to do with counting, uh, looking for full moons, looking for new moons, and there's debates around in the rabbinical literature around it whether you not do, you need to physically see the moon in Jerusalem for mm. the new month to begin, or do you simply calculate when it would have happened and then it happens? And so this okay. is like, does the calculation count? Is that what matter? Or does physically you had to physically see the full moon and so what happens if it's cloudy when does nightfall technically begin which is typically when you can see three stars right mm. so that's nightfall because it's not enough for the sun to go down because it's still twilight you have to see three stars of the naked so yeah it's even <laughs> when sundown starts is dependent on you seeing an astral three astral bodies in the sky and that's really fascinating just because you know in, in modern times in the early 21st century we would make and I'm sure many people would try to make a strict distinction and st- say, well, that's just astronomy. They're just connecting the calendar with astronomy. But we're talking about um, creating calendars like that back when there wasn't as much of a differentiation between astronomy and astrology in like ancient Mesopotamia, where some of these things had overlapping meanings and motivations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, in, in ancient Hebrew, there's no different word. When, when we finally do get a word for uh, for ast- astrology, right? It's just astrolog- uh, astrologia is what it is in, in Aramaic, and then it's tagniut in, in Aramaic as well in Hebrew. But it's just that which deals with the stars. They don't make any distinction between um, what we would call astronomy and what we would call astrology. That distinction to them is, is um, I don't think it's it's something that obtains. I don't think it obtained until recently, honestly. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the calendar is tied to these astral bodies, and being able to make those predictions is incredibly important. And you just can't make them without uh, without the astrology, astronomy that existed in the ancient world. And so the irony about this whole business of this uh, fallen angel teaching everyone astrology or astronomy is that they were the Israelites were dependent on exactly that science to know when to celebrate their holidays. Right. Uh, so th- so is that in one Enoch that story you're telling? It's in it's it's in First Enoch this business about uh, which was incredibly popular. Of course, it doesn't survive into the Western canon. It does survive into the Ethiopic canon. But we know that it was incredibly popular. Um, one because the New Testament quotes it. It's in it's actually quoted in the Book of Jude, and we find more copies of it among the Dead Sea Scrolls than we do other books of the Bible, including books of the Torah, which is the the five books of Moses. So that, but that's otherwise not a canonical text that gets passed on in most of the either Jewish or Christian tradition after that point. Right. It doesn't serve. It doesn't go into becoming canon in those traditions. But I would say that in the Second Temple period, it was incredibly popular, and 
And again, Canon, I think, has this idea that someone's picking it to be authoritative. I think it was authoritative at that time. And again, one example of that would be uh, in the in the New Testament, where the book of the letter of Jude quotes it as authoritative. And so the the writer of that letter quotes First Enoch as as being authoritative. And so it was it. So this was a person who was an early Christian, clearly thinking the book was scripture enough to quote as a proof for something. And also, right. many uh, ancient Jews also followed. In fact, the and we can get into this into this in just a moment. The community at Qumran, who also had a, a very intense and interesting relationship to both the calendar issues that we were talking about, but also uh, astrology more specifically. In fact, the earliest Jewish uh, horoscopes uh, are actually from or recoverable from Qumran, and they relied on a version of the calendar described in the Book of Enoch, and not on the calendar that was eventually accepted into so-called Orthodox Judaism. So it was authoritative enough for that community to literally base their calendar on it. And of course, the following of the Jewish law that you would celebrate a certain holiday on a specific day, which was very important in the Bible, they trusted the book of Enoch and its calendar enough for basically for them to be out of step with the rest of the Jewish world. And um, and that Enochian calendar, which is a solar calendar, it's a 365-day calendar as opposed to a Looney solar calendar that has an injury calculation with a, a leap month every several years, every four years, or every 36 months. Um, that 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 Enoch calendar actually occurs in the practice at Qumran, the folks who produce the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it's clear that the calendrical issues and how to read the heavens were a were the topic of a a, a, a substantial debate among the Second Temple Israelites. Sure. Um, I guess I was just thinking it's interesting how there's a tension then. If if that text, Enoch, is around the first century BCE, roughly, um, probably composed correct. third century, second, maybe late fourth, early third century BCE, and our um, we don't see we see evidence of it at the, at the Qumran site, and then it's again like preserved ultimately by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Okay, so that and and that one saying. You know, astrology is taught to humans by fallen angels, but then we also have some other people in that time period. Like I think um, Josephus and like other people that tried to attribute to Abraham, the like biblical patriarch of, of right. Judaism, the invention of astrology, and they try to say that Abraham was the first person that discovered or invented astrology. That's right, and there's there's uh, we have uh, people like Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, making the claim, and so does Philo. Make the claim that Abraham invented astrology. That idea will be uh, incredibly influential. It'll we'll find it in the Talmud later, and we'll also find it in the Quran. The Quran actually uh, quotes that idea that Abraham was originally an astrologer. So we'll see that idea survive uh, well into the modern world. And uh, to my knowledge, there is a there's a and you may know more about this than I do. There was a I think it's Valens who quotes a really some kind of uh, astrological manual or text um, uh, that that was in circulation attributed to to Abraham and uh, it had some authority although I don't know anything about it and I can't find much about it seems like there's only one quotation that survived or something and uh, it seems like it has to do with traveling and things like that and there's a uh, of course that links up to the idea that in Judaism we would say something like my father Abraham was a wandering Aramean and so, unsurprisingly, what what we might find is you know prospicious days for for traveling in an astrological manual attributed to Abraham, given that he did a, a good bit of 
of traveling in his story. Yeah, um, there was a text on Hellenistic astrology that, um, because it's first cited by Valens and then Firmicus in the second century, and then Firmicus Maternus in the fourth century also cites the same text. It dealt with the topic of the lots or what's known as the Arabic parts, which are like mathematical points that are used in a chart. And Valens actually um, also seems to have gotten the Time Lord or the timing technique known as Zodiac releasing today from that text. And he cites this whole excerpt from Abraham where he summarizes it on the topic of travel and knowing when a person would travel, which was actually a, a kind of a big deal um, sure, because it could be so yeah, very treacherous. Um, and so that's probably the largest piece of it that we actually have that survives is, is Valens doing like a synopsis of this text from Abraham at one point, and it uses very distinctive language. So, but the so it means that there was a text on technical because at this point we're jumping forward in time. We're jumping to the period after the first century BCE when Hellenistic astrology comes on the scene, and it has birth charts and it has the fourfold system of planets, signs, houses, and aspects, which basically becomes the foundation of all of Western astrology for the next two thousand years. That system shows up in the Mediterranean in the first century BCE and very quickly impacts every Mediterranean culture that existed at that time. And one of the things that happens that's really funny is um, in my book, I noted this many of the cultures during that time period seem to have had what I don't know a better way to call it. I always call it kind of like a pissing contest about whose culture invented astrology and whose culture has been doing astrology and astronomy longer. And um, there are some like Greek historians. There's one in particular. I'm forgetting his name right now. I think it starts with a D. He's first century BCE, but he went and talked to like different Babylonian priests, and they said that they've they've been studying astrology for thousands and thousands of years. And then they went and talked to some Egyptian priests, and they said, no, we've actually been studying astrology for way longer than the um, Babylonians. And so it seems like every culture has that, and, and to some extent, this. Then there were also some claims from Jewish writers at the time that, you know, no Abraham, who's like the oldest and original guy in our tradition, uh, was the inventor or discoverer of astrology. So it's like everybody, to me, this represents something almost every culture was doing. And in some instances, they were actually um, technical authors of, of books on astrology were attributing texts to mythical or legendary or religious figures from the past, which um, presumably is part of what happened with that attribution to Abraham. But what's always been unclear to me is whether that represents then like a genuine Jewish community of astrologers or a Jewish author who wanted to attribute that text to the like biblical founder of Judaism as a sign of cultural like connection of some sort, or if instead it was part of a different um Different thing that was happening sometimes where Greek speaking authors would like attribute texts to foreign sounding sages and names in order to make it the text sound exotic and in order to increase its appeal on the market. It's not really clear and it's often debated because um, there's other texts attributed to like Zoroaster or other sages, like who the Persian sage. Hermes Trismegistus and stuff. Yeah, which is more of like an Egyptian or Greek lineage and Asclepius and Nechepso and Petasiris. That was like the most famous text that was attributed to a mythical or legendary figure. So we don't we don't know if this is like actual cultural attributions that are relevant or if they were um, 
you know, something else. But at least by that standpoint, there was a significant work under the circulation of the name of Abraham, and that does seem notable for some reason. No, for sure. And it's certainly that this is also the same time, the same time period where uh, what we might call Hellenistic Judaism is also emerging, right? And this is in the first several centuries BCE, where you have people like Artapanus and other kinds of people who are Greek-speaking Jews who are very proud of their Judaism, but they're not really that connected to uh, ancient Jerusalem. We should you know, remember that there were more Jews living in Alexandria at certain points in ancient Jewish history than there were living in all of Palestine. What was, Alexandria with, was what was the deal with Alexandria? Because there was a large Jewish community there, right? And that's, that's actually yeah. important because that's basically what we think was the birthplace and for many, many centuries after the first century BCE was the central home and uh, central area where Hellenistic astrology practiced was Alexandria, yeah. Egypt. Yeah, Alexandria was a, a you know of course one of these massive cities and it's famous for its library, but uh, it had an entire Jewish quarter, massive Jewish quarter, um, and so uh, we know a great deal about Jewish alchemy that was being practiced. We know that there were, we know of at least one other astrological text that survives from roughly that milieu. That's the Treatise of Shem, which is a, a pretty early first century BCE uh, Jewish astrological text where it's attributed to Shem, one of the one of the um, uh, ancient uh, peoples, uh, even older, of course, than, than Abraham. You know, anything you can do, I can do better. So we can, you know, push it back to to uh, to, to Shem. And so this is a, a curious piece of a relatively short, but a, a, an astrological text that's preserved. I think only in Syriac, maybe. Um, it's preserved in a 15th century manuscript, but we now know that it goes back quite quite a ways. So yeah, Alexandrian Judaism was a a, a really interesting world. We know there were sects there that didn't exist anywhere else. We know Philo mentions a sect called a sect called the Therapeutae, which were something like monastic Jews. Um, in fact, that's basically the reason why Philo of Alexandria's works are preserved, because early Christians thought that he was referring to early Christians, and well, they kept the books. So we're very lucky for that. Um, but uh, what we have is that we have lots of different Jewish communities existing in Alexandria. There was a functioning temple there. Uh, in fact. We often forget there were two functioning temples in ancient Egypt, one on the Elephantine Island, and then one uh, led by uh, Onias there in Alexandria. And these are temples that are not in Jerusalem. These are completely independent functioning temples basically in Egypt. And so it's not surprising that in the Alexandrian milieu where astrology and alchemy and other kinds of things were being uh, pioneered, that the Jewish community, which was incredibly learned, which was producing philosophy, art, poetry, it would be very strange if they didn't at some level think, oh yeah, this science is worthy of adoption. And of course, they would do the same thing that you mentioned earlier. They would do what everyone else did and claim, well, our guy made it. Abraham made it. And we'll see a similar claim with the Sefer Yetzirah, which will also be have uh, which will also come to have uh, an astrological section eventually added to it. And that text is also attributed to, to Abraham as well. Um, and again, we also see some evidence of astrological stuff in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think we mentioned uh, earlier that uh, the earliest, something like a horoscope, they're really an astrological physiognomy, uh, just to say that you're born under a certain uh, sign, you'll have certain kinds of physical features. Uh, the earliest text we have like that in the Jewish world is recovered from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what's really fascinating, is for one for, uh, um, oh, um, yeah, what's really fascinating about this text at any rate is that not only is it uh, an astrological document, uh, something like a horoscope recovered from the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
but it's also encoded. It's written in a cryptic alphabet. In most of the many of the calendrical documents and all of the uh, divinatory documents that have been recovered from the Dead Sea Scrolls are encoded in a series of several different uh, uh, substitution ciphers. And we don't know why they're in these substitution ciphers. It's very unusual. But the um, the Brontologion, this mechanism by which you uh, uh, divine the future by when thunder happens on certain times, and also the uh, the astrological figiogamy that's been discovered at the Dead Sea Scrolls, both of them have been both of them were encoded for some reason. So why we don't know, but this is the earliest surviving documents, at least in the history of Jewish astro uh, Jewish astrology, uh, that are for whatever reason encoded. Well, let's get into Qumran and the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and before we go there, that's interesting. You mentioned that just because the encoding or encrypting um, of esoteric doctrines was a, a common thing that was done with esoteric texts in the ancient world. And actually, Valens is like constantly complaining about how Nechapso and Pedasirius and some of the other authors like Critodemus made their works um, Twisted and cryptic and hard to understand, and he's constantly complaining, like, "Why did they make this so hard to understand?" Like the gods to Valens wanted humans to have this knowledge, and he doesn't understand why these authors were making it um, so difficult in transmitting it. But he says he he did his best to understand it and pass on the knowledge to us. Um, so that's uh, interesting to see that come up. So let's talk about Qumran. So so this is actually a discovery. Um, in the early 20th century, right, where there was like a series of caves that were discovered. Um, was this the one that was discovered by like like goat herders? Yeah, that's cave four that we're looking at now. It's actually a stone's throw away from the Qumran site. Um, you can you can walk takes you 10 minutes to walk there basically from the actual site. But yeah, um, uh, they were discovered, um, which is weird. They weren't actually discovered in the 1940s. Um, we know of uh, scrolls that were being recovered there for. Uh, centuries. In fact, uh, Origen, the early the early Christian church father, actually bought a scroll from someone who found it near Jericho. It's almost certainly a Dead Sea Scroll. So these scrolls kind of creeped out over the centuries, and the big discovery, of course, was made in the nineteen uh, late nineteen forties, and uh, we discovered uh, uh, about a thousand different texts. Some of them are Bible. Some of them are non-canonical scriptures. Some of them are what we call sectarian scriptures. That is to say, they're scriptures uh, are religious texts specifically for that community that was located in Qumran. Uh, we think they were Essenes, although what exactly an Essene is, is not clear. Um, and of all the texts we've recovered, the word Essene never occurs, not even once. So if, if that's what they were, they never called themselves that. In fact, they typically call themselves the Yachad, uh, but they were a, an, a, a seems like they were an apocalyptic sect of Judaism. Um, there seem to be lots of these, and they were at some point had become disillusioned with the temple in Jerusalem. They had broken with the temple of Jerusalem, and they had they had uh, retreated into the desert basically to wait for the judgment of God. And uh, what we've recovered there, like I said, are, are biblical texts, non-biblical texts, and sectarian documents. And it's those sectarian documents that contain the astrological material. And the going theory, at least at this point, is that the that the astrological documents are encoded in a very similar kind of code. There are three different codes there, uh, one of which is cryptic A, cryptic B, and cryptic C. Uh, the cryptic texts that have been recovered are almost all sectarian. 
And so we think that perhaps what's going on is that those documents were only admitted, only meant for initiated people initiated or in a position of leadership. And so that in um, that uh, encryption, which is just a substitution cipher, it's something incredibly complex. But we think that those encoded texts were probably meant for um, those either either initiated into the group or the leadership of the group. Okay. So, um, and this is like an aesthetic community that's in like the first few centuries CE, more or less, right? They were probably destroyed in the the Great Revolt that began with the uh, the destruction of the the temple, or ended with the destruction of the temple. Um, that's in fact why their scrolls were probably there. They uh, Josephus mentions that they did go out to fight the Romans. They probably thought that the the world was ending and that they this was the apocalyptic battle they had been waiting for. Uh, we we know from Josephus, assuming Josephus is to be trusted, that they did go to several different battles and they lost badly. They were slaughtered at several different battles. And it seems like what happened was before they went off to battle, they stored their scrolls in those caves and never came back. They all got killed, basically. Mm. And the Romans ransacked the site at one point, probably looking for treasure. Uh, it seems like they even found some of the stuff in the caves. So just sort of, they didn't care about the scrolls. And the scrolls basically set in various states of uh, disrepair on the cave floor until they were discovered throughout history, primarily in the uh, in the mid twentieth century. And so, and again, some of our earliest our earliest astrological uh, document is is from that time period, which was quite surprising, because uh, at least at that time period, Judaism had uh, portrayed itself as inherently rational and uh, things like that. And then there's this astrological document that gets discovered, and People are like, well, what do we do with this? Well, turns out that astrology is eminently rational, and um, it's unsurprising that we find astrological documents, especially considering that the Qumran community was uh, very interested in this question about how to calculate the calendar correctly. And so it's unsurprising that if they had a what we might call a heterodox view of the calendrical issues, that they would also be by extension, very interested in uh, astrology because, well, you can't really do a calendar without having some knowledge of the heavens, and there was simply no other knowledge available uh, aside from the astrology of the day. Right. Um, so, so this is important because it, it also shows a familiarity with natal astrology, the concept of natal astrology, and the concept of birth charts, and these astrological texts from Qumran are fragmentary and there's not a lot but there's some tantalizing little bits there that show at least um, that astrology that there was some sort of Hebrew textual tradition of astrology from prior to that point that's right yeah and they are like you said they are very fragmentary um, they basically just say something like if you're born under on, on this month you'll have this disposition or you'll have or you'll have this physical feature you'll have a, a big nose or you'll have this kinds of uh, this sort of these kinds of things. So we don't know if this was part of a, a larger collection of astrological documents. We don't know often what motivated them to have what documents they had. But uh, typically things that get copied uh, are important. Copying is, a, is an expensive endeavor. And so if they copied it and they encrypted it, it must have been worthwhile. Um, but it is fragmentary, but we just don't know what the original text would have looked like. Probably a bit like the Treaties of Shem is what I imagine. Uh, the Treaties of Shem being this uh, other document from around the same time period, 100 BCE. And we think that these are very similar kinds of documents. Um, what's weird about the Treaties of Shem is that it, 
that toward the end there's a there's a a mix up in the actual zodiac where they transpose uh two of the zodiac uh sequences and the the scribe actually says this is wrong transpose these when you read it and so it, it the text gets copied there's a mistake and then the scribe comes back later and says this is bad astrology you have to flip these two yeah i love how sometimes in the history of textual stuff when there's like a somebody writes a mar- a scribe writes a marginal note on the side that says like you know this is wrong or he means this or fix this but then it gets incorporated into the text later on um, by subsequent scribes. Um, in the Treatise of Shem, it gives like annual predictions for the year ahead based on different zodiac signs, but it's still it's somewhat basic kind of uh, I think it's almost like mundane astrology, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. And also it's it's interesting because there are certain sequences of zodiac that are inherently good or inherently bad. And as it goes toward the good ones, I think Pisces, I think, is the one it really likes. It basically says, and everything is going to end well, and it's happily ever after. And so it's 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 again, one wonders just to what degree such a text would have been useful, but it shows that 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 Jewish writers are working using astrological information in a way that we had no idea about and had been basically been denied by scholars. But it's clear that they this was going on. Um, and this also points to the when we get to the New Testament in a minute that there was a there was this idea that no the ancient the Jews of the time of the New Testament would have had no astrological sense of the of the star of the Magi and this was a uh, a desire on the part of I think some scholars and maybe for theological reasons to disassociate Christianity from um, astrology by disassociating Judaism from astrology and it turns out that's just not possible it's clear that that uh, uh, Josephus, uh, obviously, he makes comments that there are astral things that predicted what was about to happen to the Jerusalem temple. Uh, Philo has a somewhat mixed opinion about astrology. Uh, on the one hand, he seems to think that it's maybe folly. Uh, and then on the other hand, he clearly says that the temple is built with certain kinds of astrological things in mind, the, the 12 jewels on the breastplate of the high priest and things like that. So again, Philo can't quite make his mind up either, but it's really clear that the Jewish population of the first century had some substantial contact with the astrological world and took it very seriously. And as we see from the uh, the much the later centuries, it's not only do they have substantial contact with it, but even aesthetically, it's ending up in the synagogues. And we'll we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. But um, yeah, just it, before just before we get there, to mention you mentioned another um, early. Jewish group of writers, which is uh, the authors of the New Testament. And one of the most prominent um, areas that that shows up, of course, is in the Gospel of Matthew and the story about the Star of Bethlehem and the Magi who see some sort of um, star or some sort of uh, celestial indication that the Messiah has been born, and they therefore travel to Jerusalem where they find uh, Jesus, Jesus has been, has been born, and then they um, offer gifts, and then like take off and go back home. And that's very clearly within the context of like the first century CE Mediterranean culture and society um, is like a, a indication, or it's a story that's being told, which like confirms from an astrological standpoint, from the Christ, early Christian perspective, the notion that. Jesus is the Messiah and has been born, but it's interesting realizing in retrospect that Christianity started as a you know small subset of Judaism, where it's like a Jewish cult of some sort, right? Basically, 
That's right. Yeah. Of course, the the early Christianity was a, a Jewish movement. Jesus was, of course, Jewish himself. All of his early followers are Jewish. Um, the Matthew story is fascinating because clearly it's being written in a Jewish milieu, but there's also some polemical business going on there. Because obviously by the writing of the Gospel of Matthew, it's very clear that the Jews, the Jewish population, is not accepting Jesus as the Messiah. It's just not happening. And it's also in the Gospel of Matthew where we see some of the most frightening anti-Judaic stuff where, for instance, in that Gospel, uh, Pilate wants to have Jesus executed and the, the, the Jewish population says, let his blood be on us and be on our children. Um, and that's where we get this really pretty frightening anti-Semitic stuff that ultimately emerges in the Middle Ages. So Matthew what, what is on the one the hand very really quickly. What was the context of Jewish culture uh, waiting for a Messiah? Where, where's the idea of a Messiah that uh, Jewish writers or people that subscribe to that religion at that point by the first century? Uh, what's the background on that? So the this idea of Messiah emerges during the apocalyptic period of of Judaism, which would be roughly during the Persian period, fourth century BCE. And so there's this idea that a um, a uh, anointed one, uh, that's what literally the word Messiah means, someone who's been anointed, it typically connotes a king. And this new king would uh, be anointed by God specifically, and that they would come into history and then they would do a variety of uh, this worldly tasks. Uh, specifically, what they would do is that they would uh, liberate Judea from uh, political oppression. They would establish peace in the world. And then they would establish the true practice of Judaism. So it's there's a, a lot of expectation around what this Messiah is going to do. Although early in Judaism, there's no sense that it's going to be the Son of God or anything like that. Even there's even debates about how many of them there will be. Uh, some early Jewish sects said that there will be two. Some said there will be one. It, it's a big debate in this time period. The word Messiah itself in the Bible really only occurs. Uh, one only one person is actually called a Messiah in the Hebrew Bible, and that's actually um, the Persian king who let the Jews go home. He's actually referred to as a Messiah, and so there was an expectation, a big expectation, and that expectation um, would have been look for that they would be looking in the Hebrew Bible for prophetic utterances about how this uh, Messiah would come about. And um, one of those utterances is a, a verse from, I think, Numbers, where it says, and a star will come forth from Jacob. And that idea that there'll be some kind of star, right? That there'll be a, an astrological or there'll be an astral event that will indicate that the Messiah has come is clearly being echoed there in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. But what's interesting about that is that there's also some polemics going on there. Because the Jewish establishment, by this time of the writing of the Gospel of Matthew, has rejected the Messianic claim of Jesus. They don't believe it. Well, because they don't believe it, it, they're going to the Gospel writer of Matthew says, "Well, if you guys don't recognize it, even the pagans recognize it. The Magi, right? These uh, these uh, Persian astrologers, they recognize it. You're so blind that you can't even see what's in front of you." And the idea of the Jews being blind becomes a common a kind of trope that develops. So on the one hand, there's a clear idea that a, some kind of astral event will herald the Messiah. It's also worth pointing out that another Messiah will emerge um, in the second century, Shimon Bar Kokhba. And his name, Shimon Bar Kokhba, literally means Simon, son of a star. It's a pun on his name. Koziba was where he was from. And to make him match the stellar prophecy, his name changes, and they call him Shimon Bar Kokhba. 
And if you actually look at the coinage that he minted during his uh, rebellion from 132 to 135 of the Common Era, one of the coins, the largest coin that he minted, uh, it's a silver coin, it shows an image of the temple, and very clearly on the temple is a giant star, right? So it's the combination of the restoration of the temple and this astral thing showing I'm really the Messiah. Uh, of course, he was defeated in 135 by the Romans, and hundreds of thousands of Jews were slaughtered because of his failed rebellion. But this linking of the star, uh, a messianic star, uh, was an idea that would have been instantly recognizable to to Jews as a uh, as a heralding moment for for the messianic redemption, whether it's recognized by Persian Magi or minted on the coins of a uh, failed messianic leader. Right. So there's that earlier context because of that earlier story about a star coming forth. Um, so early first century CE, first and second century CE, Jewish writers are very aware of this. And then also in addition to that. Um, in other areas of like the Roman Empire, because by the first century CE, we're talking about the Roman Empire at its height in the like first and second centuries, and the Roman emperors are all very aware of astrology, and in some instances are using it. Um, like I believe Augustus like published his horoscope supposedly or his birth chart because he believed that it indicated because of what he was told by some astrologers supposedly early in his life that he would become. Um, you know, somebody who would be very prominent and who, who would control the emperor empire or what have you. Um, so, so sometimes there were um, leaders or politicians who were um, using astrology in order to um, assert their authority to rule and as confirmation that they were like special people. And so that's part of, um, you know, if we if we don't take the Gospel of Matthew. Literally, necessarily, um, or if we think about the context of the writer or the author who wrote it, um, part of the the goal there is to sort of like indicate or say that the stars are literally confirming that somebody important has been born at this point, and that this group group of astrologers from the birthplace of astrology from Mesopotamia literally came over because they had witnessed that something important had happened astrologically. Uh, when this person was born, so it was like confirming his authority in a way. No, sure, for sure, yeah. And the t the term gospel is not an accidental use, right? The gospels were documents released by Roman emperors, right? the The term gospel was a was a the good news that came from the emperor about how things were going. So the it's just even the term gospel is a kind of um, authority move, right? That's the gospel. The real gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So yeah, that that's a huge thing. And and also the the Roman emperors were. Uh, um, when astrology served them, they would use it, and they were perfectly happy to banish them and burn their books when it didn't. Um, again, I think establishment figures often have a sort of weird relationship to this kind of thing, where uh, on the one hand they want it, they want to be able to use it as actionable intelligence, and they want to be able to prove that they're legitimate. But on the other hand, that the idea that these astrologers could be plotting behind their backs and know things that they don't know, and so I think the Roman emperors uh, were happy to. To, to publish when it agreed with them and burn it when it didn't. So I think they were more opportunist, very opportunistic when it came to it. Yeah, and especially they were continually annoyed by astrologers trying uh, predicting their death and like length of life and like when the emperor would die. And that was one of the biggest things that could get you into trouble as an astrologer. Um, but then at the same time, you have other astrologers like Thrasyllus who worked directly for like two decades as the you know, chief court astrologer to the emperor Tiberius, 
Um, so there's a, definitely an interesting and complicated relationship. But at least in the Mediterranean, it's like widely thought at this point that um, the alignment of the planets at the moment that you're born has something to say about your life and your future, and especially your fate. And that becomes an important concept because from this point forward, we do start to see in the um, Jewish tradition and in the Hebrew writings um, debates about astrology within the context of fate, uh, because astrology and fate became like intertwined at that point in Mediterranean society, or the notion that one's fate was indicated by your birth chart became like a pervasive notion. Yeah, I mean, this is a uh, this is a sort of a general Mediterranean philosophical development that happens where you see it with uh, things like stoicism where uh, one can determine one's uh, ultimate fate because the world is basically determined and this is an, an important point in what we might call again apocalyptic judaism is that apocalyptic judaism is part of what's great and terrible about it is that apocalyptic judaism says this is the entire arc of the universe everything has been planned out and no matter how bad things are God's in control and the bad people will be punished and the good people will be rewarded and everything will work out in the end. Well, on the one hand, that's a very comforting story if you're an occupied people and the you know that God will eventually cast out the occupiers. That's a great story. On the other hand, it seems to take free will completely out of the equation. It doesn't really matter what you do. God's ultimately has a plan and God's plan was going to happen and everything's part of the plan. So it's unsurprising that the folks at Qumran who are very, really invested in an apocalyptic analysis of Judaism are also going to be much more comfortable with, uh, with astrology than perhaps other Jews who would be much less, much less interested in this sort of apocalyptic idea that the world is hurtling in one direction and everything is part of some vast plan and there's basically there's nothing, we're just sort of cogs in a machine. Um, and we'll see also in the Talmud when we get to it in just a minute that part of what's interesting is that one can learn one's fate through astrology, and the the task of doing that is not to violate God's uh, law or violate free will. It's actually to make you a better person, because now that you know your fate, well, you can sort of accept it and go on with life. And so you see this idea begin to, it's a very stoic idea and from Chrysippus and other kinds of people, but it also enters into Judaism. And if you look at a text like 4th Maccabees, there are four different books of Maccabees that have survived, it's heavily influenced by Stoicism and the idea of fate that says, yeah, you're torturing me to death, but this was fated, and so it's not bad. I'm not really that concerned with it. So the 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 greater Roman world and its fascination with the concept of fate and how that gets tied into to Judaism is going to be a big deal. And as we transition to the period of time after the temple's destroyed and Judaism begins to move into the rabbinic period, it's exactly those kinds of arguments that are going to dominate the rabbinical world. It's going to be, is there fate, and how does it apply to the Jewish people if the Jewish people have this specific covenant with God? Does it protect them from fate? Does it mitigate fate? Can they mitigate fate? Does astrology, uh, is it, in, is it and this is the classic distinction, right? Is it simply a sign of what's going to happen, or is it actually causing what's happening? And if it is causing what's happening, then where is God in all this? And so those are the the kind of debates that happen all over the Roman world, and there, of course, they also happen in the Jewish world as well with the rise uh, the rise of the rabbis. Yeah, um, and in the Christian tradition, even though there's that story in Matthew that's like using astrology basically in order to put a foundation under Christianity within contemporary Mediterranean culture by saying 
astrology confirms that this guy is actually the Messiah, or this guy is the Son of God, um, after the first century, it seems like uh, there became these debates within Christianity, and Christianity later Christian authors had to uh, find ways to kind of downplay that story because there was like a theological issue that became front and center for several centuries about um, astrology being associated with fate, but the concept of free will and choice being theologically very important. And therefore, a lot of Christian polemics ended up being directed against astrology because of its association with fate and predetermination and things like that. And it seems like we get some of that in the Jewish tradition in this time period at the same time. Um, so, what is the time frame of the Talmud, and what's what is the significance of that in terms of Jewish culture and literature? Yeah. So, after the destruction of the Temple, of course, the Temple was the center of Jewish life in many ways for many Jewish people in the ancient world. It was destroyed by the Romans in the Great Revolt, and so Judaism had to pivot. It had to basically reinvent itself, and it says, "Look, there's not going to be a Temple anytime soon. So, what do we do?" And the idea was, rather than offer sacrifices, we offer study and prayer. And on top of that, as I mentioned earlier. We have this Bar Kokhba rebellion, which resulted in the death of, of what we think were maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Jews in Palestine. And this was basically a genocidal effort, a, a genocidal effort on the part of the Romans. And they targeted rabbis, they targeted their students. And one of the big worries was that Judaism as a tradition could be just basically destroyed because the very rabbinical uh, teachers and the preservers of the tradition could just be murdered. And so in, the, in this moment of crisis, the rabbinical institution begins to write down how to do Judaism. You can, I, sometimes when I teach this, I'd say, what if, uh, I don't know, for Americans or other people, right? What if uh, all the people that celebrated Halloween were being killed off and we wanted to preserve how to celebrate Hall Halloween? We would get all the people who knew how to celebrate Halloween in a room and we would say, how do you do Halloween? And so you have to get a pumpkin and carve it like this, and you have to give out this much candy, but you have to give out at least this much candy, but not more. So you get all these rules about how to do Halloween. Well, the rabbis did the same thing. And what emerges is a document called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is a kind of giant compilation of basically all the oral law that they could write down. Well, that text is notoriously difficult to understand, and not all the issues got settled. And so a commentary was written on it, two commentaries. One of those commentaries was written in the Galilee, that becomes the Palestinian Talmud, and the other commentary was written in the academies of what is now Iraq and Babylon, and those commentaries become the Babylonian Talmud, and the Babylonian Talmud is a commentary on the Mishnah, right? And those documents become central to the development of Jewish law. What's really important for folks to know about the Talmud is the Talmud is not in itself a document that tells you what to do or what not to do. It's a series of debates. And so what we find in the Talmud is not, don't do this, do this. What we find is Rabbi Yochanan said this, and then Rabbi Hanina said this, and then Rabbi so-and-so said this, and they said this, and then maybe this guy's right, maybe this guy's wrong, and later generations of people ultimately codified that into a practice of Jewish law and that codification process continues to this day. It's never, it won't ever be done. Um, and so this is what's interesting about the Talmud is that it's not an authoritative document in the sense of thou shalt not, it's a debate. It's a series of debates. And so unsurprisingly, one of the things they're going to debate is going to be precisely this question of astrology, because it seems that everyone in the Talmud accepted at some level that it was true. 
The question is, how was it true? And the question is, could and how could you do it? Who should you who should you deal with when you do it? And so, what we see is a, a wide range of debates in the uh, in the basically in the Babylonian Talmud, which is unsurprisingly considering that this is in a Persian milieu, this is in a Zoroastrian milieu, this is the very milieu in which a great deal of astrological developments happened. So, unsurprisingly, the Talmud is going to be very interested in thinking through what is going to be the Jewish relationship to uh, what it calls its tagniut or or uh, or astrology. Right. So you shared with me a site, uh, safaria.org, that has some handy. One of the pages that has that people can Google is it's titled Talmudic Astrology Source Sheet, and it has a bunch of relevant quotes. Sometimes that are explicitly connected with astrology, or sometimes that are indirectly connected. Um, but here's a, a couple that that connect to the free will issue that we were just talking about. Yeah. So this is a pretty famous Perkia vote. It's from that earlier document, the Mishnah. And it's uh, it's trying to deal with this question about whether there is uh, free will or not, right? So, uh, what's interesting about this is that it says God sees everything in advance. So that is to say, God knows what's going to happen. God foresees it, yet choice is given. Now, on first blush, this looks um, contradictory. How can God know what's going to happen, and we still have free will? And the argument here, and what we see this argument in later texts, is that God's foreknowledge doesn't cause it to happen. Uh, in the same way that I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at you, Chris, right? But I'm not causing you to exist. I can I can see you're there, uh, but I'm not causing you to be there. I'm talking and your heart's beating, but I'm not. My talking is thank God not causing your heart to beat. Um, I hope not. Yeah, God, uh, God forbid. And so uh, what we have here is, uh, on the one hand, God knows what's going to happen, but choices is choices given. Now, to the degree to which that's philosophically satisfying, I'll leave to your audience. Uh, but that's the idea, basically, that Judaism tries to square the circle by saying um, that in some sense everything's foreseen, but uh, choice is is granted. Ethical obligation still obtains. You can't say, "Well, I, I stole because God foreordained it." You can't you can't get away with that. Yeah. So there's a the same tension in Judaism that's in Christianity of that. Um, how can you have like an all knowing, omnipotent, central God figure? Uh, that knows everything ahead of time and knows especially what will happen at the end of the world, uh, but also how can there still be free will and choice? How can choice still matter if everything in some ways is almost like predetermined? Right. Yeah. This is, in fact, the uh, the argument you see there from Perke Avot is almost the exact same argument given by St. Augustine. Augustine gives the exact same argument that that uh, God's foresight doesn't logically imply determinism, that knowing what's going to happen doesn't make it happen. Now, I don't know to the degree to which that's uh, analytically true. That That's a question for another debate around compatibilism, but um, but it's a similar kind of idea is reached in, um, in, um, in, in the Talmud. But again, what we see here in Perkei vote, right, this uh, document is a uh, Mishnaic document. What we see here is one opinion. So we shouldn't take this to be authoritative of Judaism. In the same way that this is a, a pretty famous rabbi, uh, he's just, he's a rabbi, and his position could be easily disputed by another rabbi that would say, God doesn't know, or God does know, or you don't have a choice. There could be a wide range of opinions, and as we'll see if we go down the sheet there, uh, we'll see the big debate, the famous debate between um, between the various rabbis about whether or not there is uh, this concept of mazal, which we'll get into in a minute, whether mazal applies to Israel, and if it does apply to Israel, 
in what way does it apply? And so this this idea of mazal becomes the real big um, philosophical and religious debate by the time of the of the Talmud. Yeah, and I'm actually trying to find that right now to pull up because that's where your point about there being sometimes contradicted uh, different opinions that contradict each other uh, in the same document coming from different rabbis that are holding different positions at different points in time. And one of those, what became one of the, like, the central debates was one rabbi saying that um, astrology does apply to the Jewish people, and then another rabbi contradicting him and saying that there is no star or there is no astrological fate for Israel. Yeah. Um, and if you want to search through it, I can probably see it. If I might be able to just recognize it by sight. But yeah, so this word mazal is fascinating. It actually comes from the word mazalot, which we saw earlier back in the book of Job. Um, in the book of Job, it's used generically just to mean a kind of constellation. In fact, it might just have meant the the Pleiades. We're not actually we're not actually sure. But the term mazal eventually becomes a, a technical term, which um, which means something like astral influence or the determining star or the determining astral influence. And uh, most people probably have heard this word mazal. If you've ever been to a Jewish party or a wedding or whatever, you've probably heard people exclaim mazal tov, uh, which I've always loved about Judaism because no matter if something good happens uh, for you, right? The the phrase is uh, mazal tov. May it be good mazal for you. May that there may may there be a good astrological or astral uh, determination for you. And so right. this concept so, of of mazal and, and it became is, like a, a technical term that also meant yeah. like zodiac sign, very very literally yeah. in, in technical text. So yeah, mazalot means the the whole wheel of the zodiac, and and a, and a mazal could be a, a, a one of the zodiac signs. Right. So, yeah, so it's really and, funny, and so so it's it means zodiac sign, and also by extension, it can mean astrology or astrological fate or uh, influence of the stars or a number of different things. But that. Phrase even as it is used today still has some lingering, almost a uh, echo of that meaning when people. Oh, absolutely. What do, what does it mean today? It means like you know that's a Con- congratulations. Thing. Yeah, congrats. Basically now it just means congratulations. So if someone you know, buy a house uh, as I heard you did, right? Gotta say Mazel Tov, Chris, and it would be like congratulations. Yeah, it means um, like uh, good good stars or you know that's yeah, very auspicious. Literally, it means yeah. It, tov means good, and so literally it means may there may you have good Mazal. Um, and the idea is something's good has happened to you, and you. This is obviously a a, pro, a, a prodigious time. I hope it continues. That right. you have good mazal. So, and I don't think average Jews ever think that when they say mazal tov, they're giving someone basically an, an astrological greeting. Uh, but that's certainly what it is. And this word has become obviously ubiquitous in Judaism. But interestingly enough, right? That's the that's the actual that's the meat of the debate in the Talmud. Is this entire idea of uh, ain mazal le Israel? There is there is no mazal in Israel. That the astral astral determinations do not affect the people of Israel, and the 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 basic argument here um, is, and I'm not sure how they translate it in the in the Safaria, and I think this is the Sonsino version of the Talmud. Um, uh, let me see. I think I saw it. I think you scrolled past yeah, it at thought- one point. It's sort of buried in there. I bet if you control F and just search for star for Israel, yeah, there's, there's no here. constellation for Israel. Um, no, and I'm no, sure if you no scroll- so in there, it's using Mazel again. Yeah, it's probably Mazel. If you scrolled up and I can see the original, the the Hebrew, the Aramaic, um, somewhere up here. Yeah, you can see that. There's the word right there. She'en Mazel Israel. There, 
uh, that is that there is no and you know how do we know that right? So literally, it's she'ain there she'ain mazal le'Israel. There's no mazal for Israel, and the idea, the debate here is whether or not uh, astrological determinism affects the people of Israel. And the reason why that's a debate at all is that in Jewish mythology and Jewish theology, the core idea is that Israel has a special covenant with God. And that because Israel has a special covenant with God, God always acts. Everything that happens to the people of Israel is the result of providence, for good and for bad, mostly for bad. But everything that happens is for the result of providence. And therefore, because there is a direct providential relationship between God and the Jewish people, Mazal doesn't interfere. Right? Mazal doesn't interfere. That's one side of the argument. The other side of the argument is that no, God made the world in such a way that the natural forces of the world, for instance, something like we would call gravity, it's not like you have a special relationship with God and therefore you can jump out of a building. God's not going to save you for jumping out of a building because gravity is a force of nature and you should know that gravity is a force of nature that will drag you to the ground. Well, ditto, the mazal is a force of nature. It's built into the fabric of the universe like everything else. And of course, it affects the Jewish people. Now. There's a wide range of debates between those, right? So some rabbis seem to believe that mazal affects Israel when the Jewish people are being bad, right? So if they break the covenant, they're outside of the protection of the providence of God, and therefore mazal affects them. Some say that mazal doesn't affect the entire Jewish people as a group, but it affects individual Jewish people, right? And then some people say that mazal is sort of like a default position, so that if I'm born under a certain astrological configuration— and I don't become a good person, then that's my destiny. I will I will suffer whatever fate that I do. But according to this idea, if I follow the Jewish law very scrupulously, I will abrogate my mazal and I will be able to avoid whatever, at least whatever bad things uh, will have happened to me because of my uh, the mazal that I was assigned at birth. And um, that's it's sort of a spectrum, right? So you have two positions and then a range in the middle. And what we'll see beginning with the Babylonian Talmud is rabbis from the Babylonian Talmud all the way until now basically taking some position in that spectrum, that there's no mazal for Israel or mazal is uh, a perfectly natural part of reality and it's either um, you can't escape it or it's abrogable. It's it's negligible. It's it's uh, you can alleviate it by by uh, being a Jewish person um, and being a good person of some kind, giving to charity or things like that. And so, what you see, and then there's a long debate that you can see there in the in the Safari sheet that you pulled up, where one rabbi is giving all kinds of proofs about why he thinks Mazal is not real. Right, that uh, one guy and me were born on the same day, but he's a thief and I'm a rabbinical scholar. One guy was born this day and he's dead and I'm alive. And so they sort of like the twin arguments that you get sometimes in the, the Roman empire where uh, the anti, the anti, anti-astrology arguments from the cases of twins, you get something like that argument also in the Talmud. Um, but you also have clear ideas that um, I think the Talmud says that your, that Mazel determines how many children you'll have. It determines your wealth and it determines when you die. So, it's a huge debate in the Talmud, and that debate has uh, absolutely never, never ended to this day in Judaism. Right. There was an article I was reading in preparation for this by Francis Schmidt in the journal Culture and Cosmos, and 
it was it's actually available online. You can Google it. It's titled Horoscope Predestination and Merit in Ancient Judaism. And one of the things I found interesting about their reading of some of that debate was they said that it seemed to have less to do with the idea. I always assumed that debate had to do with the idea of um, certain Jewish authors thinking that astrology applies to everybody else, but the Jewish people are special and therefore are excluded from astrology or from fate or from the influence of the stars because they're God's chosen people. But their reading of it was more that um, that I found interesting was the notion that um, the Jewish people had the ability to transcend fate to a certain extent to the extent that they uh, acted righteous or through righteous action, that through righteous action you could somehow um, alter or change your fate to some extent, which is actually interesting because then it implied that you're still partially predetermined to a certain range of things, but there may be a more or less um, positive manifestation of that depending on if you're basically like a good moral person according to the sort of moral code or the ethical code. That's right. Yeah. And that idea survives, something like that idea survives even into modern Judaism in a non-astrological way. Uh, for instance, at the very beginning of Yom Kippur, there's a, 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 a Aramaic legal document read out, call, read out loud called Kol Nidre, which abrogates all the vows you made the previous year so that you can't be held responsible for them as you're being judged. And there's an idea in Judaism that God decrees who's going to live and who's going to die and what kind of punishments will be meted out to people. But if you uh, give charity and if you act righteously, God will temper the decree. Something like that seems to be happening in, in Jewish astrology, astrological concepts as well, where you are fated, right? You are fated, but various acts of righteousness can liberate you from that fate. Uh, we see a similar idea also in Hermeticism, which is a little further afield, but there's an idea that your body may be bound by fate, but the soul of the righteous person may be able to escape fate by engaging in a kind of purification process. So we see that idea also in Egypt with the, with the Hermetic documents. But something similar is probably happening here uh, in the Jewish world as well, that there's sort of a, a workaround. But yeah, I think the idea of abrogating fate, or at least uh, changing your fate to some degree, uh, is, a, is an interesting idea in, in, in Judaism. And you see this idea survive even up to the days of the Kabbalah and into the, into, into the Sefer Zohar, that one can manipulate the metaphysical world at some level by uh, doing righteous deeds down here that shapes the supernal world. And by, shape, by shaping the supernal world, one can uh, alter one's, one's destiny. Yeah, there's one, and this is part of the story, but this is re relevant to what we're talking about here, but it's from the Talmud, and it says, um, this is the story about the daughter of the rabbi, and this is the yeah, one that's like the, the one that's usually cited in terms of the ability to change things mm -hmm. through righteous action. Um, do you want to read this, or maybe I could? I don't know if you'll read it better than I can. Um, yeah, so we want to start with um, maybe like here where it says like Proverbs ten. Oh well, yeah, we have to yeah. scroll back up. Yeah, it's and kind of it's, tricky. Yeah, it's these stories are often kind of a, a mess. But what we have basically is the, these. Uh, the, it's always the Chaldeans. Um, the Chaldeans are a sh a, sort of a short word for astrologers. Um, they t basically tell that um, that you either have or have not a daughter. And uh, and uh, the snake's going to bite her, and she's going to die. And she was very worried about this. Um, and um, yeah, the story goes on. But eventually, what ends up happening is that um, that she's able to merit not having not experiencing this fate. 
I should also point out that the word charity, right? The the word charity, it's sadaka. Uh, sadaka has a little bit broader notion than simply giving money to disadvantaged people. It, it's actually the word, it, sadaka actually comes from the word sedek, which means righteousness in Hebrew. So it can re- refer to a wide range of things. But yeah, what we have here is this, um, is uh, Rabbi Ikiva making the argument that certain kinds of righteous behaviors can undo um, the the harsh decrees of the of the Chaldeans of the astrologers, so um, yeah. So it says, um, uh, blah blah blah. Rabbi Akiva as well derived that there is no constellation for the Jewish people, and Rabbi Akiva had a daughter, and Chaldean astrologers told him that on the same day that she enters the wedding canopy, a snake will bite her and she will die. She was very worried about this. On that day, on her wedding day, she took the ornamental pin from her hair and stuck it into a hole in the wall for safekeeping, and it happened that it entered directly into the eye of a snake. In the morning, when she took the pin, the snake was pulled and came out with it. Her father, Rabbi Akiva, said to her, what did you do to merit being saved from the snake? She told him, in the evening, a poor person came and knocked on the door, and everyone was preoccupied with the feast and nobody heard him. I stood and I took the portion that you had given me and gave it to him. Rabbi Akiva said to her, you performed a mitzvah and you were saved in its merit. Rabbi Akiva went out and taught, based on this instance, that even though it is written and charity will save us from death, it does not mean that it will save a person from an unusual death, but even from death itself. Um, yeah, so, and then a blah, 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 and, and from which it conspired to Rav Nahim Bar. I, uh, I'm not sure how to Yitzchak. pronounce that name. Yeah, yeah. Okay. As yeah, well, that it, yeah. Uh, that it can be arrived that there is no constellation for the Jewish people. Um, and then it, it sort of goes on. So that's just one story of one of those instances of maybe part of the implication of that story was um, that some things can be changed through actions or through, in that case, like righteous acts. Right, and this this is an old idea in Judaism, right? And this co- and at some level, it's linked to this idea that by performing by performing righteous deeds, by maintaining the covenant with God, then the fate the power of Mazal is somehow diminished, right? That's somehow diminished, right? And so the idea is, uh, you know, she heard this poor person and uh, did a good deed, right? This uh, this mitzvah, uh, and because she did a good deed, uh, that abrogated the 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 death sentence that was prescribed to her, uh, but it was prescribed to her, right? That's the Talmud is really clear. She would have died that way had she not done the righteous deed. And I think that's what's um, that's what's really important about the uh, the story is that it would have happened, but she did this righteous deed and it and it abrogated it. Right, which almost sounds like, uh, for example, Ptolemy in the second century says that he has this discussion about fate and predetermination. He says things that are, things are. Predetermined by default, if you don't do anything in order to stop it. But if you're aware of the astrology and you do something to counteract it, that just like you know, a doctor can give you a medical treatment which can help to counteract a disease that otherwise might kill you, that astrologers can somehow uh, counteract fate through contrary forces or something like that. So it's interesting seeing overlap between those different views of astrology and that kind of. Um, limited form of determinism or negotiable form of determinism. Right, yeah. And you see the same idea later in um, um, the uh, 12th century astrologer Abraham Barchia, who makes the exact same argument. He sees astrology as preventative medicine, basically, 
the idea is uh, you go to the astrologers to learn what what will happen if you don't do anything. And he likens it to a, I think he gives the example of a, um, of a horse at full gallop. And uh, if you are a uh, blind person, which, you know, the ableism aside, the blind person will never move and they'll just get trampled by the horse. But the person who sees the horse coming will jump out of the way. And the idea basically is that uh, you go to the astrologers to, to see the horse that's coming. And it doesn't mean that, yeah, so that, and that's the point of astrology is to see the horse is coming. Same way, and he likens it to a doctor. You, 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 you shouldn't go to a doctor to get cured. By the time you could do that, it's already too late. And so it's something like preventative medicine, but it's just preventative medicine for fate, which is a, a nice way of, of thinking about, um, a nice way of thinking about what, how he relates to astrology, where it's, it's a kind of soft determinism, as we might say in, in the philosophical world. Yeah, and also related, and it comes up in some of the Jewish discussion that also comes up simultaneously in the Christian tradition and is one of the ways that astrology kind of survived through the Middle Ages was um, you know, with Ptolemy's form of like causal astrology, where astrology is an extension of physics and the planets and stars cause events to happen um in nature. Through similar sort of rays, like the sun heats up things or or what have you, um, there was this notion that astrology affects the body, but it does not necessarily affect the soul or what have you. Or at least some Christian writers started to defend astrology on that on those grounds, saying that astrology had power to influence people, but its power was limited, and it that that was their way to like make room for choice and for free will. And we see some similar views coming up in some later Jewish authors, right? Yeah, it's it's there's some similar ideas, and the question comes down, and this is a debate that comes generally with the with the debate around um, an Aristotelian understanding of the world, which Ptolemy seemed to have accepted this sort of um, this causal right that the world is the reason why astrology works is it's because of it's part of the causal mechanism of the universe. Whereas in the uh, more Neoplatonic worldview, which Judaism accepts, uh, some Jews accept the Aristotelian worldview, some accept the Neoplatonic worldview. Whereas in the Aristotelian worldview, it's sort of a top-down thing, right? Fate is flowing down from the stars, whether it's Alkindi's version of the astral rays or whatever. But in the Neoplatonic world, what's interesting is that there is a procession, right? There's the, the divine force flowing down, but there's also the recession. And that's the forces are flowing back up just as much as they're flowing down. And this idea gets taken up, especially in mystical Judaism and things like the Zohar, where the procession may be determining at some level some things, but the recession, the the, the way we shape those forces going back up, so to speak, mitigate or change or alter or refract those things. And now, on the one hand, what's interesting about that is that um, that on the more Neoplatonic model that you see, for instance, in the, in, in the Kabbalah, um, you have the idea that you can pretty heavily abrogate this stuff, and even, even manipulate these forces at some level. And that's where you get into the world of things like astral magic, which is a, there's a huge tradition of astral magic in, in the Jewish world as well. But also uh, what's interesting is you get some Jewish philosophers in the Middle Ages, like Gersonides, that would argue that, yes, there are these procession, recession business, right? But because no, or because we don't know exactly where the where it all meshes up, you can't predict anything. So we know these forces are real, but there's no predictive power because exactly how the forces are aligned are so complex, you can never know exactly what's going on. In fact, uh, you may be able to do micro predictions very close, but the further you try to do them out, it, the predictive power completely breaks down. So um, 
so I think what's interesting about um, about the astrological, the causal mechanisms of astrology, assuming you're assume, uh, uh, assuming you're taking up a deterministic model of what ast- astrology does, what's interesting is that an, uh, you get a very different output from an Aristotelian understanding of the universe as opposed to a Platonic or Neoplatonic, and you get both of those in Judaism. And so often, for instance, what we see later on with someone like Maimonides, Maimonides will just outright condemn astrology. He'll outright condemn it as astral magic or worshiping the stars, or he has all these ideas about why it's bad. And the astrologers who are living at the time say, yeah, we condemn that stuff too. We don't do any of that either. And so his his condemnation falls flat because he assumes an Aristotelian worldview and then assumes that his opponents assume, assume that worldview too, and they don't. And so he just talks right past them. And so you can see why in the Middle Ages, um, as these astrological ideas develop, what's really going to matter is what's sort of under the hood of the philosophical idea of what's going on there. And um, there's going to be a wide range of why this is acceptable. Either it's acceptable because it's simply a natural feature of the universe, or because it's doing something very different than determining our fate. Uh, Maybe it's not doing that at all. Right. So, so there's this whole um, ambivalence, though, about astrology in rabbinic culture that we see um, in some of that those debates in the Talmud. And then, despite that, or despite some of the rabbinic uh, ambivalence, there were or there have been discovered in the 20th century a bunch of these zodiac mosaics in synagogues all over uh, Palestine in the first seven centuries CE. Right. That's right. Yeah, we can see the most famous one. Is in Sephora's at the Beit Alpha Synagogue, um, where it's very clear that the the people that supported that synagogue, we don't know a lot about what that population looked like. Um, the that was largely a Roman area, and so those Jews were very likely very Hellenized, and so those Jews would have been much more comfortable with uh, straightforward um, um, straightforward astrological uh, workings. That would have been very comfortable for them. But yeah, we see these uh, decorating the the these mosaics, which it must have been very expensive, by the way, decorating the interior of the synagogues. And so there's definitely no denying that the um, that the Jews in that world are seeing the world through an astrological lens. The question, of course, is again, just to what degree, um, just to what degree that that lens is is being um, is it is it causally determinative? Is it uh, a sign of the heaven and therefore simply a, a, a way of reading the will of God? Or is it a mechanism by which God sort of programs the universe in the same way that a programmer might program a, a computer or something? And we don't know completely what position those folks were taking. But there can be no doubt, again, that uh, astrology, uh, Hellenistic astrology, was incredibly popular among the Jews of Palestine from around that time period, second through the sixth, seventh centuries of the Common Era. Just based on the material culture, right? So, with this first one from Beta Alpha, could you describe for those listening to the audio version, like what we're looking at here? So, we're seeing um, what looks to be the four images in the middle, are probably the four beasts of um, of the four beasts that are described in the in the Book of Ezekiel. Uh, they also appear on the outside as well. Uh, those also may be the four winds. Um, and we see in the middle a depiction of what may be the sun god. Now, what's interesting is that um, that would obviously be straightforwardly blasphemous to have Apollo, uh, but we here have probably a conflation, and you can see there are stars on the body of uh, the sun deity, 
and it's probably some conflation of the Israelite God and Apollo, and then uh, a, a ringed around um, ringed around this deity and the four uh, chayot, or what they call it in Hebrew, in the book of Ezekiel, you see the various astrological symbols that are pretty uh, the pretty classic ones that you would recognize, and they're both uh, they're both uh, illustrated, and they also have their Hebrew name uh, written out beside them. So you can see. I don't know. I can recognize. Um, let's see. Let's see where you find see the one at the side. top. Yeah. So wish um, I could make this here. Let me see if I can make this bigger. There we go. Yeah. So that's I think Cancer. Um, yeah. So and, this is supposed to be Cancer, and yeah, then so right here. Cancer. And so the left left of that is a. These are not. These are drawn very roughly. So this yeah, they're is, drawn uh, very roughly. Arach. I'm certainly looking for looking for my sign Dali, which is Aquarius. Um, and again, how uh, exactly these map on to? Yeah, you can see Dali down there at the bottom, uh, which is Aquarius. And seeing how these uh, map on to the Jewish months, which is a very complicated business, by the way. Uh, the, exactly how the zodiac maps onto the Jewish months is, is, was some a bit of debate in in the Middle Ages, um, and also how they map onto other things as well. There's parts where they try to map them onto parts in the Hebrew Bible, which are very complicated. But yeah, um, yeah. So we can see the division of the of this of the classic zodiac. What's interesting though is that um, what we don't see is them being mapped onto the Hebrew months, right? So you don't see sort of a a mapping onto the Hebrew months there. It's just a straightforward zodiac that'd be recognizable to anyone in the in the Hellenistic world. Sure. And I found so I was looking for like stock photos I could buy rights to to get to be able to share this for this episode. And this was another zodiac I found. This is the one from Tizpori. Is that am I pronouncing that correct? Sephoris. Yeah, it's Sephoris. Sephoris, okay. And what's interesting about this one, I haven't seen this one in person. So it's and these reading the Hebrew in the in the Mosaic form is a little hard for me, but yeah, it's the same uh, same thing. You can see them classically wearing like uh, Greek and Roman clothes. Again, you can see the chariot back there in the back uh, where the where the sun disc is. Uh, it's damaged there in the center, so you can't quite make it out. But you still have the four beasts. Uh, the chariot, of course, represents the the Merkava, the chariot, the the, the winged uh, throne of God. Uh, and it looks like there's on the outside edges there's both Hebrew and Greek, which is interesting. Or not surprising. This is, of course, a Hellenistic world, so you would have people uh, speaking and reading and writing in both. Uh, I've not seen this zodiac in person. What's interesting about this one is that the interior, the zodiac signs themselves are marked in Hebrew, but the interior, the interior monogram is in Greek. Which again, this is just uh, thoroughly, uh, again, very thoroughly Hellenistic. And now I can imagine, right, uh, that. On the one hand, you would certainly have some Jews that would be very enthusiastic about this kind of Hellenization. On the other hand, we know that they were Jews that absolutely hated this. For instance, uh, there's a famous story in the uh, Talmud about a Hellenizing Jew named um, named uh, Acher. They called him Acher, Elisha bin Abuya. He was the most famous heretic in all of Judaism. And what he was infamous for, one of the things he was infamous for, was that he loved to sing Greek songs. And every time he got up, Greek scrolls fell out of his clothes. He was hiding Greek stuff he was reading. And mm-hmm. so, um, in fact, the, the, the Talmud even says in one place, uh, cursed be someone who raises uh, pigs and cursed be one who studies Greek literature. And so there certainly was um, uh, 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 a very deep ambivalence about this in the Jewish world. Uh, but yeah. clearly, whoever invested in those synagogues invested a lot of money to have those mosaics made. 
and and that's a common issue with just um, Mediterranean culture during this time period from the you know first few centuries BCE to the first several centuries CE is just um, after the conquests of Alexander in the fourth century BCE. Suddenly, Mesopotamia and Egypt and most of the Mediterranean was under the control of like Greek-speaking rulers, and Greek became the common language. So that there were many different people from different cultural backgrounds who were speaking Greek, even if they weren't necessarily ethnically Greek. And um, that's also true of Jewish authors, but also you know sometimes like Mesopotamian authors or Egyptians or um, Romans eventually, and that that becomes one of the issues when you know determining what to call or figuring out to what to call the type of astrology that's practiced in this time period. Do we call it Greek astrology? Except that sounds a little weird because it's not necessarily people who are ethnically Greek who are practicing it per se, even if they speak Greek. Um, or, or yeah, just just a different debates around that. But it's sort of you mentioning that makes me think of it. Right. No, there was a big culture war about this. And again, the the Hanukkah celebration, right? The the war that was uh, sparked off by the Maccabees re- rebelling against the Seleucid Empire uh, Anti- and Antiochus IV Epiphanes. People forget that 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 many of the victims of that insurrection that led eventually to the to the Hanukkah story were not Greeks. They were Hellenized Jews. Uh, it was a civil war as much as it was a war against the Greeks. And one can imagine that there was this uh, incredibly conservative branch of Judaism that would have been positively horrified by the importation of this kind of stuff into Judaism. They would have seen it as as paganism. Like I think mentioned earlier in the podcast, one of the words that one of the phrases that develops for paganism in Judaism is avodat chokavim v'mazalot. It's the worship of uh, stars and the mazalot, the the constellations. And you can imagine that uh, many conservative. Jews, ancient conservative Jews, and modern ones for that matter, would have looked at the uh, these uh, looked at these mosaics not as a sign of a flourishing multicultural liberal Hellenistic society, but as a betrayal of Judaism and basically uh, an embrace of of paganism. So um, both sides of that debate existed very much in the ancient Jewish world, and it it still exists. Although what's interesting, and I was preparing for this podcast, I was kind of interested. Um, and this is, of course, jumping ahead a lot, but I won't dwell on it. But looking at in the modern Haredi world, this is the the world of uh, the the hyper orthodox Jews. You know, folks have seen them, I'm sure, with the long black coats and the beards and the side curls and the you know this very orthodox Jews. And I was kind of curious uh, just what degree Mazalot stuff is still going on in that world. And sure enough, I found a book called Safer Mazalot in a orthodox hyper orthodox bookstore, an ultra orthodox Haredi bookstore. Where you can uh, look up stuff about your mazalot, and so apparently it's alive and well in uh, in the Haredi world as well. Now, if your rabbi catches you with that book, I don't know what they might do, but it's for sale for twenty dollars. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's one of the questions I have: is to, to what extent was mainstream Judaism largely successful in stamping out uh, astrology from a theological standpoint to the same in the same way that uh, Christianity attempted to um, versus to what extent, like for example, do these zodiac mosaics like indicate that it was more widespread at one point, and then there was maybe a downturn in its in its acceptance in the centuries that followed that? Versus how much is that not really true? How much was astrology accepted in Jewish society uh, after this point in time? I- 
I, I suspect that it was probably both. I imagine that there was some section of the population that embraced it and accepted it as just basically part of the science of the day, just in the same way they accepted the philosophy of the day or any other discoveries that people were making of the day. And I imagine there was a more insular, inward-looking Judaism that rejected it as paganism or, or something like that. What we, what we do know is that those mosaics um, existed all the way up to the 7th century or so. And by the 8th and ninth centuries, what ends up happening is we see Jews doing astrology, right? We see uh, this is the rise of the folks in the uh, what comes along in the Islamic world. And we have people like Saul and Mashallah. Uh, they're not only doing astrology, but they are incredibly skilled astrologers. Uh, among the most skilled of the day that are being incorporated directly into the Islamic project, for instance, of building Baghdad, mashallah, uh, was part of the team that calculated the, uh, the uh, did the astrological calculations for the building of Baghdad. Um, and they wrote, both of them wrote uh, astrological texts that while didn't become important in the Jewish world, um, did get translated into Latin eventually and became incredibly important textbooks in the history of astrology. So it's clear that Jews were doing astrology and not just doing astrology, but were high-ranking, uh, incredibly technical astrologers and maybe even uh, innovators in astrology. Uh, it's my understanding that Mashallah contains, uh, one of his texts contains, um, uh, I think it's the fourth branch of of of, uh, of astrology where that sort of consulting astrology, where you kind of are uh, doing ast astrological stuff in the process of, of uh, figuring out what the person wants to ask. And um, there was some, I think you've published on this, Chris, There's some, there was some debate about just how far back this goes. Do we see it in uh, Dorotheus? Do we see it? Where do we see it? But I think the first place we see it definitively for sure, I think, is in Mashallah, where he, he's spelling this out, where it's clear that either it existed a long time ago and we've lost it, and for whatever reason got preserved in Persian or Arabic astrology, but it's one of the few systematic places, I think, is in a Jewish philosopher where it's really spelled out in a, in a pretty clear way, I think. And I think you, this is something you have some expertise in. Yeah, Masha'Allah was the in the eighth century CE who was living and writing in Baghdad and and apparently writing in Arabic. Um, but in seven seventy five, this text on reception, which is one of the many texts that he published, but it's one of the earliest surviving complete works on what's called horary astrology or interrogational astrology, which is when you cast a chart. When the astrologer casts a chart for the moment that a question is posed to them, and the chart itself is supposed to describe the nature of the question as well as its outcome. And there's some some traces of this form of astrology that go all the way back to the first century CE in Dorotheus, um, as well as some interrogational charts that survive from, I think, like the fifth or sixth century in the compilation of Polkus. But Masha'Allah is one of the earliest authors where we've got a full-fledged fourth branch of this type of astrology that's really matured and um, gets fully established with that that first and second generation of astrologers in Baghdad in like the late eighth and early ninth centuries. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think and I think what's interesting about Mashallah and uh Dunash Ibn Tamim and Ibn Dawood al Yahudi and, and Saul, who I think Saul's written probably one of the most important introductory texts to astrology that got sort of translated and reprinted and reprinted and reprinted. Um, what's interesting about those guys um, is one, we don't know about their lives. Well, we just don't, we, all we know that they were Jewish and they did astrology mostly. Um, but what's interesting about them also is that if we didn't know they were Jewish, 
their text wouldn't reveal it. Right. Right. So yeah. we they're they're Jews doing astrology. They're not Jewish astrologies doing Jewish astrology. They they are are um so I think what's interesting about those texts is is this question of is there a such thing as Jewish astrology? And I, I think my answer is is no. There's Hellenistic astrology. Uh, there's you know there are various forms of astrology that developed, but Judaism, with the exception of Kabbalah, which maybe we'll get to toward the end, Kabbalah does introduce specifically Jewish elements into uh, into the astrological world for, for the practice of Jewish people. This a kind of Kabbalistic astrology that develops and still is practiced, to my knowledge. Um, but these guys are basically uh, scientists, and in the same way that you would never know that Albert Einstein was Jewish from reading his paper on general relativity, you would never know that Mashallah, right, was Jewish from reading any of his works that have survived. We only know basically that he was Jewish from from people from the outside being like he he was a Jewish guy, um, which is a bit unlike uh, Ibn Ezra, where we do see some integration with astrology and and Judaism. Specifically in hermeneutics around reading the Bible, but um, and again I have to admit I've I've looked at uh, some of the texts by Mashallah and uh, Saul um, in um, in the Dykes translation, which is a pretty good translation. But I have to admit that some of that stuff is so technical it just goes right over my head. Those guys are definitely writing for uh, for 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 experts. I mean, they're except for Saul with the introductory stuff, but a lot of the more technical stuff just goes right over my head. Yeah, I mean, um, Mashallah seems like the first author. Assuming setting the question of the author who wrote under the name of Abraham aside, that from the first century CE that Valens and Firmicus were drawing on, like setting that author, whoever they were and whatever their cultural background was aside, it seems like Mashallah in the late eighth century is the first um, Jewish astrologer we know of by name, who was like a major astrologer and was a big deal. But we don't have, as you said, anything much in the way of his philosophy in terms of if his religious beliefs or practices, how he reconciled that with the astrology or, or did or did not. Um, one of his contemporaries, Theophilus of Edessa, who was a, a Christian, did leave some theological discussion about how he reconciled those things. And then Solomon Bisher, I'm a little unclear about because his name um, is really taken that way, although I was corrected, Ali A. Alumi. Back in episode 298 on Braun of Baghdad, said that there may be a misunderstanding and Saul may have been like a Nestorian Christian or something like that, despite the name. I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, but yeah, Masha'Allah is the first major Jewish figure, but was interestingly somebody who was writing in Arabic. And it's not until we get to Ibn Ezra that we get the first major Jewish astrologer that we know of, as far as I know, who was actually writing in Hebrew. And ended up making major contributions or or influencing the tradition in a notable way. Right. We get Abraham Barchia is writing in Hebrew too, and he's also trying to pioneer. Uh, he's really, I think, the first that's trying to pioneer a specifically Hebrew vocabulary for doing astrology. But everyone wrote in Arabic at this time. It was the 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 standard academic language. So Maimonides writes in Arabic. Uh, Saudi Gaon writes in Arabic. Everybody writes in, in Arabic. Their works, their works are translated later into Hebrew. Um, but again, I think what's interesting about Mashallah, uh, whose name in Hebrew may have been Manasha, we don't really even know what his name was. Um, uh, Mashallah is just an, it's a it just means as God wills it. It's a it's an epithet really more than anything else. Um, what's interesting about him, I think, is that 
he's doing astrology unapologetically. He doesn't feel the need to do any theological justifications at all. It's not like he says, well, let me uh, do this. Let me write all these astro- astrological manuals and let me answer the rabbis about why I can and can't do this. He doesn't care, right? He, it just it's, it's as if that he's working in a milieu that's scientific. And because he's working in a milieu that's scientific, he just happens to be Jewish. And I think that's, again, to use the Albert Einstein example, Albert Einstein, you know, despite the fact that he was persecuted for being Jewish and doing physics, it, it didn't matter to him that he was doing it that way. And I think martial law is interesting in that way. And it gives us a glimpse into the sort of uh, the team of people, for instance, that he was working on when he was doing the, the work for describing when to found the city of Baghdad. That was a multicultural team of people. There were Jews, Muslims, or Christians. It just shows you that that early period of Islam it counters a lot of the Islamophobia that we often hear that uh, early Muslims just conquered everything and subject everyone to the sword. And if you didn't convert, you died. And this sort of Islamophobic vision about early Islam or Islam in general, where it's not the case at all. You have a multi-religious, multicultural group of people founding the capital, right? Picking the day to found the capital of what's going to become the, the, you know, the, 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 the center of the Islamic world at some level. So I've always just found that to be, uh, again, uh, disruptive. Of, I think of a lot of Islamophobic ideas about about uh, how this kind of how these kinds of things uh, developed. Yeah, the early Abbasid dynasty, especially, was really interesting in terms of what a um, how open they were to integrating foreign knowledge and wisdom in different culture cultural things, especially things that were, you know, going to be seen as advantageous to them. Um, taking over and, and running things, and astrology was one of those. And it was at that point seen as like a technology um, that could give you an advantage in things by you know literally knowing the future and knowing when to act or when not to act. Alternatively, using the concept of electional astrology. Um, and Al Biruni actually preserves the birth chart for the founding of Baghdad. So this is actually the chart that Masha Allah and the other team of astrologers ended up choosing where you can see what they did. They waited until uh, Jupiter, the most positive or the greater benefic, was in its own sign in the sign of Sagittarius. And then they put the ascendant. They waited until Jupiter was rising or about to rise over the eastern horizon, and they put it right there in the first house to make Jupiter um, prominent in the chart itself. Yeah, it's interesting. And again, I haven't actually seen this before. Uh, and so, yeah, it's fascinating that, again, because of how technical the description was, that it, it survives. And what's interesting also at this time is this is also the same t- about roughly the same time period where we have uh, Sefer Yetzirah, which also has Jewish um, astrological information encoded in it. But also uh, we have uh, in the Sadia Gaon, uh, one of the other Jewish writers, roughly around the same time, where he actually records in his commentary on the Sefer Yetzirah, which we can get into in a moment, uh, the astrological conditions of the time he was writing the commentary, and so we have um, we actually have his um, uh, charts. Not that it's a strong word, but just the astrological conditions. He's saying this is the conditions upon which I'm writing, which is interesting because we now know the exact date. And I'm sure there are folks out there, including yourself, uh, who could probably reconstruct almost the time that he was uh, composing his uh, commentary on the Sefer Yetzirah. So mm. it's a, a, an interesting sort of. Uh, we at this time, aside from the the very tiny sort of horoscopic stuff we get in in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we're now beginning to see Jews actively 
casting horos- uh, things like horoscopes and encoding uh, astrological information that survived down to this day. Okay. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit briefly. The Sefer Yatsura, and that's where the Tree of Life comes from, right? It's a bit complicated. It's um, the Sefer Yetzera is the first time that we have the mention of these entities called the Sephirot. Um, the Sephirot eventually become emanations of God in the later developments in the Kabbalah, primarily in the 13th century, in a text called the Sefer Bahir, which is a little earlier than that. But it's in the Sefer Yetzera that we have this mention of the Sephirot, which are some kind of principles by which the world, the cosmos, comes into being. So we have the 10 Sephirot, and we have the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And by combining those things, uh, God created the world. That's the way that Sefer Yetzirah is typically read, although the text is so enigmatic that it's not clear. What's interesting about Sefer Yetzirah is that very early on in its development, we have several different recensions of this text. There's a short recension, and there is a long recension, and there are others as well. But in the long recension, astrological information is put into the fifth and sixth chapters of the text, where we have a long system of correspondences. And to my knowledge, um, and, and you would obviously be the better read of this, I'm fairly, I think that the correspondences are very typical of the time. They look very much like the ones you find in Valens that are um, the various parts of the body, the various uh, astrological signs, and the various kinds of temperaments and dispositions that emerge. Uh, I think they tracked very, very closely to the ones in, in Valens, which I think were basically universally known and accepted by um, the seventh and eighth and ninth, and ninth centuries around the time that Sefer Yetzirah begins to uh, be written down. So what's interesting is that um, is that the the Sefer Yetzirah, and this is the uh, the pretty famous Tree of Life configuration that we find uh, a bit later in Kabbalah, um, a bit later in the in the in the Kabbalistic and uh, the Kabbalistic development. But that image is certainly the most famous or a configuration of the Sefirot. But is this it's interesting correct? that like in I'm, the, I'm just looking for like a good like stock image, but I'm not yeah, sure if this is. Yeah, yeah, that's accurate. Yeah, so this is uh, uh, this is the Sephirot as they are developed primarily in Lurianic Kabbalah. Um, um, it takes centuries for this system to develop. One of the things that I think people all think get confused is that the that Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah are the same thing. They're not quite. Kabbalah is a later development uh, in Jewish mysticism. There were other Jewish mysticisms prior to the Kabbalah. And the system of the Sephirot that you're seeing now developed primarily in a text called the Sefer Zohar uh, that was uh, edited together in the 13th century, although it leans on this idea of the ten Sephirot from the Sefer Yetzirah. Uh, and the Sefer Yetzirah is famous for being a, a sort of quasi-magical book by which people made artificial humans called golems. Uh, golems are pretty famous uh, in, in sort of mythological history, Frankenstein's kind of golem. And Sefer Yetzirah is alleged to contain the miracles by which you can, or the magic by which you can create these beings. In fact, there's a reference in the Talmud where um, some rabbis are studying this book and create uh, a calf uh, out of clay, and they also create a man out of clay. And so what's going on in this text is it's very clear that the writer of Sefer Yetzirah, or at least the editor of the long recension of the Sefer Yetzirah, wants to incorporate into the creation of the world, the structure of the world, and the, the the redactor of that long recension understands that the zodiac, the structure of the zodiac, is part of the fundamental structure of the world, and that the zodiac is a mechanism by which various kinds of uh, dispositions and features of the world are, are, are caused or reflected. So, 
the writer of the the writer of the Sefer Yetzirah, at least of the long recension of the Sefer Yetzirah, clearly thinks that there is a, a, a an ontological or a cosmological causative mechanism between the uh, the creation of the world, the creation of the zodiac, and the various dispositions and and things that flow from the uh, from astral influence. So this is a um, especially in the fifth and sixth cha- fifth and sixth chapters of the text. It's very clear that the writer there uh, understands the astrological features of the universe to be part and parcel of how God made how God made the world. Right, because um, eventually, at some point, um, each of the different spheres becomes associated with uh, the seven traditional planets. Right. That's right. Yeah, they. You have a couple of different schemata of how exactly those uh, relate to one another. But um, yeah, you see, you do see that they become um, the the lower seven, beginning here with Chesed and going to Gavura. Those lower seven become associated with the the planets, uh, because the top three, the top three Sephirot, Chokma, Bina, and Keter, they're they're kind of perpetually occluded from a universe. They don't really exist so much in our universe. It's the lower seven that exist in our universe, and though they become associated typically with the planets, although even that, uh, there's a lot of debate about exactly how those, how one should track the planets or track the various astrological entities to these, uh, to these sephirot. Uh, and there's uh, yeah, there's definitely not issue. any uniformity about how they should be done. That's an issue. It seems like there's a modern versus traditional debate there, where there were some traditional assignments of like in the Middle Ages when the seven traditional celestial bodies got assigned to some of the Sephirot, but then in modern times, it seems like some contemporary authors have revised it to add in like Uranus and Neptune or Pluto sometimes. Yeah, I, you know, the the problem with the Sephirot and the problem with Sefer Yetzirah is that it, one, it's it's such an obscure little book that no one's really sure what it's about. There's a lot of people that will tell you they know, and anyone who claims that they know probably doesn't. Um, but the even the exact configuration, or even how many Sephirot early on in Kabbalah wasn't agreed upon, uh, people are often shocked to know that the earliest um, there was a competing school of Kabbalah that had thirteen, that had thirteen, and uh, eventually the thirteen uh, lost to the ten, and the ten are what stuck. Although the thirteen make more sense to me, uh, God is thought to have traditionally to have thirteen attributes, and uh, it would make sense that there'd be thirteen emanations of God, but. 10 was the number and 10 stuck. What's important about Sefer Yetzirah and its astrological information is that because Sefer Yetzirah was accepted by uh, the learned Jews of the day, uh, we have commentaries on it uh, by uh, Judah Barzillai and uh, Shabbatai Donolo and uh, the Saudi Agawam, because we have such authoritative Jews, r- rabbis writing commentaries on it, this basically canonized it. And the idea that it was came from Abraham also got basically canonized. And in a way, what's interesting about that is because the text gets uh, these authoritative commentaries, because these authoritative rabbis are writing commentaries on it, that kind of canonizes the text. And when it canonizes the text, in comes the astrology, right? So what's interesting is that the astrology kind of makes its way into Judaism, not that it ever left. And so many uh, the mystically inclined Jews and eventually Kabbalistic Jews can make the easy argument to say, of course, astrology is permissible because it's in Sefer Yetzirah, right? And are you, you know, how can you say it's not Sefer Yetzirah is not true? Uh, we have commentaries by all these 
uh, these Chachamim, all these wise people that affirm it's true, and even uh, the Saudi Gaon, who had a very ambiguous attitude toward astrology generally, even did quasi-horoscopic stuff in his commentary. So this, um, this along with later on with Ibn, uh, Ibn Ezra, who incorporates astrological information directly into his commentaries in the Bible, which became basically authoritative, when he combined his uh, astrological ideas to his Bible commentaries, and he showed that various bi- biblical stuff only made sense in the purview of astrology, that again re-legitimated for a, for a big part of the Jewish population the the efficacy and the truth of astrology. And so again, you get this shot in the arm where Maimonides condemns it. Ibn Ezra is like, no, it's you can only understand the Bible at some level by applying astrological ideas to it, and then one can reveal how it actually works. And uh, Ibn Ezra, aside from writing you know eighteen massive tracks on astrology, technical tracks, which survived to this day, basically, um, he did a a great job of making it such that astrology was acceptable among uh, Jewish practitioners by basically incorporating it into his his Bible commentary. Okay. Um, I want to talk about him as our last major figure and as a good stopping point, but I've been desperately for the past few minutes trying to find a good especially a stock image that I could that shows the planetary assignments that came to be with the Tree of Life. And I have no idea how accurate this is. I'm going to guess that it's not. I just bought it from like Shutterstock, but at least it has what I've seen as the common core assignments, which tend to which assign on the left side of the Tree of Life. Um, Saturn is up in the top third position, then Mars in the middle, and then Mercury. And then on the right side, in the middle position, we have Jupiter. And then on the position below that to the bottom right, we have Venus. And then, I don't know, is this correct? The two in the middle, the sun and moon are then in, in the middle? So this this tree of life sequence, is it looks like it comes from the modern period, primarily from what is called the Hermetic Kabbalah. So it's not a traditional Kabbalistic system, not a Jewish traditional Kabbalistic system. You'll see this more in modern practitioners of of things like uh, the Golden Dawn, and uh, maybe folks who follow uh, folks like Aleister Crowley and uh, and things like that. So it's not a traditional configuration of the of of this tree of life as it would appear in Jewish texts. Uh, and part of the reason why that is is because there isn't one. No, they can't agree about how to map this stuff on. Uh, at least the Jewish authors can't agree about how to map all these things on. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, it's odd because in traditional Jewish, in the traditional Jewish Kabbalah, the first three sefirot don't really even appear in our in our cosmos. They're, they remain undescended is what the text would say. And so um, that they would be, for instance, that Binah would be associated with Saturn um, is odd because it, it's a... F- it makes Saturn feminine, which is weird. Um, right. Well, that's actually why I'm asking about that because that was the one thing about Hellenistic astrology that's been nagging me for years is like every author from the first century BCE through the 10th century says that Saturn is one of the masculine planets. Um, and in mythology, of course, Saturn is often treated as masculine. But then there's this one stray line in the surviving, unfortunately, very corrupt. Text of Dorotheus from the first century, where it treats Saturn as a feminine planet, and um, I have been driving myself crazy for years trying to figure out if that represents a 
like a textual error that's just in the received text, or if this is part of a genuine variant uh, in the astrological tradition for some reason that's otherwise unattested. And the only thing that anybody has ever pointed out or that I've ever seen that might um, show some parallel with that in pretty much any other esoteric tradition is whoever assigns um, Bana to Saturn, which apparently you're saying is a modern thing because that would uh, then make it a feminine planet according to this tradition, right? Yeah. You know what? I would have to do more digging, but to my knowledge, at least the early in Lurianic Kabbalah and in the Zohar, and I think in Cordovero as well, um, it would be weird to assign planets to the first three Sephirot at all, just because they don't, right? And also in Kabbalah, there are four worlds and the, 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 these track to different worlds and we're in the lowest world down. Like if you want to, you are here, uh, Chris, you're down here in Malchut, our entire little universe is down there in Malchut. All of the stuff above us is an entire different metaphysical register. So uh, on some level, it just strikes me as unusual. And in fact, um, I could, I could go get a book that, that would illustrate this, uh, really briefly. If, if I could, you know, if I could run downstairs, I don't know if that would, I would, if I, if I could run downstairs and grab a book real fast, I don't know if it would be helpful for me to sh- hold a book up. Um, to illustrate but it would, what? Uh, to illustrate this idea that the Sephirot are supernal. They, they exist in a world above our world. And mm. that by the time that we get down to our world, our entire world is inside that little guy. Our cosmos is inside that little part called Malchut kingdom. And all the planets are in there, right? All the planets. Okay. And then at the very center, it would say Eretz, the Earth, right? Because it's a geocentric model. So I'm just, I'm not saying that there's no historical precedent for it because I want to do more research. Mm-hmm. It doesn't occur in Sefer Yetzirah. That, uh, that I'm pretty sure about. Uh, I don't think it occurs in the Zohar. Uh, and in most versions of Lurianic Kabbalah that I know of, um, all the planets are basically contained within the lowest Sphirah. So mm. assigning planets to higher spherote would be weird considering that they don't exist in that world. Yeah, I guess um, to whatever extent, maybe if there's some author that treated the Earth as the as Malkuth and as that lowest one, then if you did try to go upwards from there and assign planets, you might end up with something like this. But maybe we'll have to we'll have to bookmark that and and return to talk about maybe when that happened at some future point. Yeah, I would have to do some more research. And I, at least for Saturn, I have a, a buddy of mine who's done a lot of research about Saturn and the Jews. He's interested mm-hmm. in this question about how the relationship of, of Saturn and, and, and the Jewish people. And if anyone would know, he would know. And I, I might ask him, I shoot him an email and ask him, have you, do you know of a place in, 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 in the, in the lore where this association with Bina and, um, and Saturn takes place? Because even Bina as a, as a Sphira is about, it's about intellect and about act. It, it's a. It's not. It just. It doesn't strike me as Saturnic. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, this scheme would be entirely schematic, which is common within the astrological tradition. Is they just take the order of, you know, whatever the planets, and then superimpose it on whatever they're trying to do. So, for example, the body parts that you start with the head, and you say that the head is the top of the body, so you assign it to the first sign of the zodiac, which is Aries. And then you go downward from there, and you assign Taurus to the neck, and Gemini to the arms, and so on and so forth. So it's just like applying a sequence of something astrological or planetary or celestial to some other thing as a sort of schematic. And it just strikes me like that, that um, you've got this pre-existing set of orbs, and then if you were theoretically to apply the, the planets to it, then that's what you would naturally end up with. 
Yeah, I don't know. And again, it's just metaphysically confusing to me because it, it's just one of the things. It's 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 applying astral bodies to a, a realm in which they don't exist. Like right. the yeah. So it's yeah. I don't know. I, and um, yeah, it's confusing to me. I, I've never I've seen those kinds of configurations, and they're very popular in the Hermetic Kabbalah, which is a, a, mm. a very deep and very rich spiritual tradition that often doesn't have a very strong connection to the Jewish roots of Kabbalah. And so um, that's, uh, it, it, I often find things that are very perplexing to me as a, as a Jewish person who studied Jewish Kabbalah and the origins mm-hmm. of Kabbalah. Sometimes I'll hear these things that, well, this means this. And I'm like, where did you hear yeah. that? Where Maybe did that come from? Evidence then of separate systems that are were not developed simultaneously. Somebody having trying to force them together. When you see inconsistencies like that, as you're pointing out with uh, Banah and Saturn, yeah, I it's it it may be shoving a you know sort of a square thing into the round hole or something. It's it's these systems developed independently with different metaphysical underpinnings, and so mapping one onto the other, I, I don't. I, I it's confusing to me. I, I can't say that I understand it. Um, and, and even with, in the Zohar, we do get Jewish astrological development. Specifically, one of the big developments we get is, um, is the idea of, uh, what are called itim. Uh, itim are the, are the times. And what's interesting, this is, I'm sure folks know this from the, the book of Ecclesiastes or Kohelet, but also, um, from the, uh, the song, right? Uh, the turn, 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 right? There's a, a time to live and a time to die, a time for war and a time for peace. Uh, the, in the Zohar, they take those um, those pairs and actually astrologize them, and so that you become born under a time of one of these, right? And they assign uh, those various times to the various sephirot and the various planets, and then that becomes a specific way of. It's almost like the the malefic, uh, prophet kind of idea, where there's a there's a range of things you can be born under one or the other. So there are these Jewish elements that do sneak into, um, or Jewish elements that become fused with with uh, Hellenistic, um, with uh, Hellenistic astrology later on. But again, most of what's going on is um, astrological ideas being imported into Judaism and not the other way around. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, all right, so let's let's focus now as we wind this down on our final figure that we've mentioned a few times, but. Ibn Ezra, who seems to be, as far as I can tell, like the most prolific uh, Jewish author that we know of and Jewish astrologer. Um, and there's been some like a revival of interest in his works recently, um, first through uh, a translation of, I think, at least two or three of his books by Mira Epstein in the 1990s, who translated them initially for Project Hindsight, and then I think translated some more for Robert Hand's uh, Arhat project. And then more recently, another scholar, uh, an academic scholar, Shlomo Sella, has just been translating all of Ibn Ezra's surviving astrological works and doing extensive commentaries that are published through the academic publisher Brill. And that's been amazing. And it seems like he's got a must have translated almost everything at this point, or close to it, I would think, right? Yeah, there's a big, there's a lot. He's translated a lot. I mean, so at this point, we're and this is a, a problem I'm, I'm sure that you know, and many people you that are watching, is that most of this historical astrological stuff just has languished in libraries for mm. for, for centuries. And uh, Ibn Ezra's uh, commentaries, he wrote I think 18 books, of which almost every book has two versions for some reason. 
and there's some debate about why there are two versions of almost every book. Mm, of um, the astrological text? Yeah, all the uh, the astrological text, for whatever reason, have two distinct versions. Hmm. And some and of I've, them, like one of them survived, only survives in Latin or was originally written in Latin or something, yeah, so right? The, so- Is it that? Yeah, so it's not it's not so it's not translations. It seems like there are okay. two different versions in Hebrew for for reasons okay. that I I I have never been able to divine. I mean, and um, sometimes that happens in the history of astrology. Like Paulus Alexandrinus in the fourth century says that he's writing a second version because his son complained that he didn't use the rising the more accurate rising signs times of Ptolemy, so he's writing like a second edition or. Um, yeah, there's like other versions of that where sometimes we have there, you know, some astrologers. I myself have some typos I need to correct in my book at some point uh, here before too long. So maybe it's something like that. It could be, yeah. I, and and the, what are the part of the part of the problem with these texts is, um, at least for me, is that they just now got critical editions, and and mm. and when you get critical editions in Brill, um, well, you're going to pay dearly for them. Right. Um, <laughs> you have to Brill's sacrifice your. Firstborn child, in order yeah. to get a full, yeah, yeah. Brill, Brill was very proud of their books, and God bless them. Um, um, I have to interlibrary loan anything I find from Brill, and I have to deal with Brill books. One of the running jokes on my channel is that you know, yeah, you can find this book. It's published by Brill, and you know, it's you know, cut to the scene where you have to you know get a second mortgage or whatever. So yeah, but yeah, we're we're lucky that many of these books are getting uh, published, and uh, I have to say, I've looked through, I flipped through some of them, and again, it's one of these things where. I know Ibn Ezra primarily as a Bible commentator, and when I get into his books, with the exception of Sefer Al-Alam, uh, the Book of the World, which is his sort of general introduction to astrology, that one I can follow pretty well. Um, but yeah, the other ones are um, incredibly technical. And again, what's interesting about that is that the technicality tells me that either he's doing the heavy lifting to introduce into the Jewish world this astrological stuff, which... We know that some people, like Abraham Barchia, wrote at least one text, uh, or at least the fifth chapter of his major text, began to introduce uh, astrological terminology into Hebrew. But it's really with Ibn Ezra that we see a very fully developed astrological vocabulary being put directly into Hebrew. And to me, it tells me that there's an audience for it. And it's unsurprising, right, that there was. A lot of people read them in Hebrew. They were translated almost immediately into Latin. And so these texts became in, incredibly popular, and I think they were being reprinted in Latin all the way through the early modern period um, and enjoyed a great deal of success. And uh, from looking at the titles and from looking at what I know about astrology, which is due in large part to, to your book and other historical books like Campion and stuff, he's basically written what we now call the encyclopedia, right? That this is, with the exception of uh, some other texts, um, Ibn Ezra tried to write basically an encyclopedia of astrology with a introductory text. And then from the introductory text, you could go and look through uh, the other texts like Rashid Chokmah or Sefataim, the Book of Reasons or the Book of Nativities or the Book of Interrogations. And you would just literally have an entire astrological library preserved for you in Hebrew. Uh, although I will say that while Ibn Ezra's uh, astrological works were popular in Hebrew, they were, I think, much more popular in their Latin translations. Uh, and the encyclopedia went on to become, I think, a standard textbook or a st group of standard textbooks in the uh, in the medieval world, and they and they and they maintained a great deal of uh, yeah, a great deal of of popularity for for centuries. Right, so he tried, he wrote on every branch of astrology, including natal astrology and electional and interrogational astrology. 
in mundane astrology, and he drew on as many of the earlier authors that he could have, including um, the early Arabic authors like Abu Mashar or Masha'Allah and Saul, but also um, he draws on the earlier Greek writers that he had access to, such as Ptolemy um, as well. How do you know him, though, maybe to set some context, how do you know of his work or, or how is he regarded outside of being an astrologer? Why is he a significant figure or what's known about him outside of his work in astrology? Yeah, so Ibn Ezra is basically known as a Bible commentator. Um, he wrote uh, a very influential commentary on the Bible. It's included if you buy what is uh, called the uh, a Mikra Oga Delot, the 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 standard version of an Orthodox Jewish Bible, what you'll get is a Bible with uh, the Hebrew text of the Bible. You'll get a Aramaic translation, and then around that, you'll get a lot of different commentaries. And Ibn Ezra's commentary is almost universally included in that in that grouping. It's considered so authoritative. And what's important about Ibn Ezra's uh, commentary, there are two things that are important about it. One, I think, as I mentioned earlier, he incorporates astrological analysis into his Bible commentary. And that does a great deal to legitimate doing astrology in the Jewish world in, the, in this time period. Also, he incorporates uh, Kabbalah. Uh, early on. He incorporates Kabbalah. Now, he's a bit more guarded with his Kabbalah. He will always say, uh, blah, 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 blah. And uh, those that know, know. And he he's sort of signpost, right? I'm, this is according to the way of truth. He'll say, al derech emet. This is according to the way for truth. And so what's interesting about Ibn Ezra is that he his his Bible commentary is pioneering because it incorporates things that had not been incorporated into Bible commentaries yet, and he goes a great way of legitimating them. Kabbalah was still very controversial in some ways. Uh, astrology was still very controversial. Controversial, And because Ibn Ezra includes them in his commentary, it legitimates them. And in some ways, it sort of signposts to his astrological works and says, well, if you think my Bible commentary is great, well, I got a 12-volume astrology encyclopedia that you might want to pick up too. Mm, and so that's, a good, it, that's a good advertising thing astrologers will have to take note of today. Yeah, do yeah, just do a you know Bible commentary or a Quran commentary, and use some astrological stuff to to back yourself up. And the kinds of things that he's thinking about here are um, certain kinds of configurations, like when the sun stands still in the Joshua miracle, and other kinds of things like that. Uh, those are the kinds of things he's interested in. Also, what's really interesting about interesting about Ibn Ezra from a um, an astrological and messianic point of view. To go back to our conversation earlier about the the overlap between astrology and uh, Messiah stuff is that he picks up an idea from Abraham Barchia that the messianic star is going to be some conjunction of Jupiter and and Saturn, I think. And um, and uh, Abraham Barchia actually tries to give a calculation. I think he predicts that this is going to happen in 1358. It, it, it didn't. Um, those calculations tend to not do good, pay good dividends. Um, there's even a warning in the Talmud about doing that. It actually says, like, cursed are the calculators. Like, don't do that. Um, but this idea that the, the messianic conjunction uh, persists into Ibn Ezra, and it can it persists even down through into later Kabbalistic texts. Uh, to this day, I've even heard people say that um, in the Jewish world that says, well, we can know when the Messiah is going to come because it's going he's going to be born on um, one specific day, there's a tradition. We know exactly what day the Messiah will be born, and they'll they'll find that conjunction in the future on that day and say, "This will be the day." If the Messiah is born, they'll be born on this day. So there's yeah, still people I, making those kinds of predictions. 
I mean, there was a pre-existing, you know, in the medieval period, uh, inherited from the Persian tradition, but he comes really prominent in Abu Mashar, where Abu Mashar wrote this book on the great conjunctions of Jupiter and Saturn and used them to time different periods in world world history, but also said that there would be different great prophets that would be born when the conjunction aligned with different planets like Mars or Mercury or, or what have you, and um, made some predictions about that. So many sort of started this tradition for many centuries of later astrologers, especially Christian authors, attempting to go back and figure out when, what the birth chart of Jesus must have been and what the star of Bethlehem must have been. And one of the theories was that it was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn um, in Pisces that happened in like the seventh century BC or something like that. I think Johannes Kepler, for example, argued that that was the case or that was his proposed chart for Jupiter. So there was already a pre-existing you know, Christian tradition that's all partially derived from the uh, story in Matthew about the star of Bethlehem and there being some sort of undefined celestial portent that indicated the birth of Jesus. So it's interesting then to hear, of course, there would have been Jewish authors who, you know, didn't think the Messiah had come yet when that Jesus like wasn't the guy, but that there would still be ones that they would be using the same techniques, but instead proactively to attempt to predict when it would happen. Right. Yeah. And uh, the date we got from Barhia was, I think, 1358 of, of the Common Era. I think that was his prediction. And I think Ibn Ezra mm-hmm. also made a prediction. I think he cast forward and tried to figure it out as well. Uh, although, like I said, this is frowned upon in Judaism. There's even a legend that says that for every time someone predicts when the Messiah will come, God delays the coming by that many years. So if okay. you say God's going to come in 2019, you know, in 2020, you know, 2028, God's going to put it off for whatever, you know, six years. All right. Well, so, that's too bad. We just had a Jupiter Saturn conjunction in December. So, you know, I don't, I don't know uh, if that's yeah, relevant, relevant here. In the Jewish tradition, there's an idea that the Messiah will be born on a specifically sad day, the saddest day of the year, Tisha B'Av. And in, on that date, it happens in typically in late July or August. Uh, that's when the temples were destroyed. That's when the Krakow ghetto was liquidated. That's the first, that's when World War One started. It's, it's when the Jews were expelled from uh, Spain in 1492. Every mm. bad thing that's always happened in the Jewish world typically happens on this day for some reason, on Tisha B'Av. And the idea is that um, this day is so sad, and it's, it's, it's a day of wailing and sitting on the floor and reading uh, dirges. And the idea is that uh, what will redeem this day is that the Messiah will be born on that day. And so one could, I guess, could, could do the math and figure out when the next uh, Jupiter-Saturn conjunction will happen on that day in the Jewish calendar. And you could, uh, you could make an argument that that would, that, that, that would be a good candidate day for a Messiah being born. So What, what day is it, or how is it calculated that day of the year? Is it fixed, or is it a moving astronomical thing relative to the current calendar? So it's it moves according to the Gregorian calendar, but it's fixed in the Jewish calendar. It's the it's just the ninth of Av. Av is a month. Uh, it's like you know the ninth of August, but it's uh, Av is just one of the months in the Jewish calendar. It typically happens in late July or August. I could look up when it's going to happen this year. Um, let's see. I don't think we just had a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, so uh, we'll have to. Postpone that because that could take a while to run that search in my astrology software. Sometimes it takes a while to spit out, you know, search through hundreds of years of dates. Yeah, to look uh, for it. So this year, at least, it'll happen. Uh, ninth of Av will be. It'll start sunset of July seventeenth, and it will end uh, uh, on the eighteenth. And twenty twenty two, it'll be the sixth of August, and it will end on the seventh of August. 
So, okay. uh, so that, that would be a Jupiter Saturn conjunction somewhere in like Cancer or Leo, I guess. Yeah, you would know better than I. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, yeah. The the the. And then again, when every time I we we do the the ninth of Av rituals, I'm always like, well, the good news is maybe the Messiah was born today, and this will all this will all come to a happy a happy conclusion. So mm-hmm. yeah, this is one of these interesting things where the traditional Jewish calendar, which has been the subject of of astrological and astronomical debate going all the way back to Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, is now sort of linked up with this astrological idea that uh, the Saturn-Jupiter conjunction is a harbinger of the Messiah, and perhaps you get two data points, and you might be able to get a date. But Right. Um, well, we'll have to save the calculation of that for other other episodes, or maybe other the commenters on YouTube can can go out and search for it. Um, run, run the calculation. So, so in terms of Ibn Ezra, and just to wrap up that final piece, so he, yeah, you're right. He he becomes one of our first and our most um, prolific authors that writes um, in Hebrew. He's drawing on an earlier Greek and Latin and Arabic astrological tradition. He's also writing writing in the 12th century, which is when um, I think he was born in Spain, and that's right when at the beginning of that century, astrology is not still not. Um, very present in Europe, but by the end of the century, all of a sudden, astrology has exploded again due to um, the Reconquista and due to scholars from all over Europe flocking to Spain in order to translate Arabic astrological texts from the libraries there into Latin and other European languages. So Ibn Ezra is one of the people who's like centered right in that revival of astrology in 12th century Europe, um, and. You know, writes in in Hebrew and has some influence there, but especially um, also influences the subsequent European astrological tradition when his texts are also translated into Latin. That's right, yeah, and yeah, that period of time, the twelfth century. You know, this is that period of time gets called the twelfth century Renaissance, for, and not for no reason. This is where the time period of the great translation projects of Gerardo Cremona and Plato of Tivoli, and this is also when uh, alchemy enters Europe. Uh, we know the exact date when alchemy entered Europe, February the 11th, 1144. Uh, that's when um, the first alchemical text was translated from, from Arabic into, into uh, Latin by Gerard of Cremona, of Cremona. So yeah, it just so happens that it's very lucky, and we're very lucky for Ibn Ezra because one of the things we also know about him was that he moved around constantly. He was constantly moving around, and he just so happened to be at the right place at the right time to have written down uh, all these texts, and um, they immediately begin to be translated from from Hebrew into Latin, and they go on to to great fame. Of course, they don't go on to not to not be controversial. Uh, the Jewish world will still fight about uh, about the authority of of astrology well after Ibn Ezra is 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 dead and gone. Um, you have all kinds of famous debates, and those debates raged through the uh, through the medieval period into the Renaissance. And I think one of my favorite things about some of the really early legal codes that developed in Judaism is that many of the legal codes commented on virtually everything about Jewish law, especially about things like sorcery or uh, Kabbalah. But curiously enough, one of the major legal codes, one of the defining legal codes of the era, says nothing about astrology. It just skips it. And that's in some ways uh, fortuitous, because by skipping it, it leaves a door open for it to be revived, and one of the things I'm I'm interested in is with the this modern revival and in interest in historical astrology, 
and the interest in Judaism about the the Jewish history of astrology, I'm really curious to see um, what impact it's going to have on Jewish astrologers. To what degree will Jewish astrologers go back to people like Mashallah or Ibn Ezra or Abraham Barchia, and then begin to think through the question of, and to what degree does the inheritance of this uh, thousand-year-long tradition, uh, what might it, what might it bear upon the practice of of uh, reviving a kind of Jewish astrology, uh, especially combined with Kabbalah and things like that? And so we have, I think, with the translation projects that are going on now, a really rich future for the history of of Jewish astrology and and um, and the the. Uh, the rebirth of these kinds of ideas and these kinds of practices that are anchored in Jewish texts in Hebrew, um, and I think that's really fascinating and really interesting. Um, that these texts, you know, Ibn Ezra didn't even—I don't think he was even widely translated until I think, like you said, the 1990s, where there any translations existed at all. And so uh, we go from basically there being Ibn Ezra molders on shelves because I don't think his astrological works are read in the Orthodox community at all. I don't know that they're published or read at all. And so that they're revived out of the the dustbin of history and to go on to live a second life is it's a very exciting prospect. Yeah, and the revival of as a part of the revival of so many ancient authors from the astrological tradition uh, since the especially the 1990s and the sudden revival of interest within that knee, both in the astrological community as well as in the academic community over the past century. Um, as studying this as something that's been part of world history and that has influenced culture and religion and society in many different ways, uh, sometimes subtle or other times, you know, pretty major, and you know, just sometimes shows up as a a blip on the historical timeline, but um, is nonetheless you know very significant. All right, so I'm I am shocked at how much history and how many things we covered tonight. We had a pretty high bar set. Where we wanted to get up to the 13th century, and somehow I think we we knocked it out of the park. So thank you so much for joining me tonight uh, for this discussion. And um, yeah, I'll ha- I hope you'll come back again. And in the meantime, I hope people will check out your YouTube channel because you were just cranking out amazing and uh, much more concise and informative episodes than I often am. I have to say, so people should check out your YouTube channel, which is um, YouTube.com/slash/esoterica channel. Uh, and your website is justinsledge.com, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Folks are interested in, and I think there's a lot of overlap in our audiences uh, between folks who are interested in astrology and interested in uh, Western esotericism, whether it's magic or alchemy or Kabbalah or the occult. And so part of the project of the channel is to provide access, scholarly access, academic access to that knowledge without uh, a lot of the stuff that kind of goes off the rails, you know, conspiracy theories and racism and all kinds of the dreadful things that often you see in those camps. So yeah, right. folks are interested in the academic study of Western esotericism. Uh, look me up and check out uh, the channel Esoterica on YouTube. Uh, and you're, you're, that is to say that you're not channeling any of your information as far as you know? I Not as far as I know. I, I, if I'm doing okay. it, I'm doing it accidentally. Yeah, but uh, you'd be you'd be amazed at the amount of emails that I get uh, of people you know, correcting the information on my channel. Uh, from channeled spirits, they're like, yeah, you, Brill's Brill is wrong. Uh, what's really right is the angel Gabriel who talked to me uh, from from my toaster. Which, hell, you know, 
can I really, I, do I really know they're wrong? I don't know. I mean, somebody's going to have a YouTube channel in like 2000 years on toaster channeling from the Plydean star seeds or something, I'm sure, because it's going to need to be investigated to understand what, what was happening at this point in history and why it ended up influencing world events in the way that it did. Um, but thank you so much for joining me tonight. I really appreciate it. This is a lot of fun and people should definitely check out your channel. And, um, yeah, uh, good luck with your work, and I, I hope you have continued success because uh, you definitely deserve it with everything you're you're doing here. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for having me on, and it's been uh, a lot of fun having the conversation. Thank you. Cool. All right, thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, and Kristen Otero. For more information about how to become a patron and get early access to new episodes and other subscriber benefits, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Special thanks also to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, Astrogold Astrology Software for the Mac operating system, which is available at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code astropodcast15 for a 15% discount, the Portland School of Astrology, available at portlandastrology.org, Astrogold Astrology app for iPhone and Android, which is also available at astrogold.io. And finally, the Solar Fire Astrology software program for Windows, which you can get from alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount.